Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the tools to uh, to get a leg up, figure out to how to live your life instead of just chasing your tail. Speaking of chasing your tail, how are you, Terry? What does that mean? I don't know, but that's just funny. Okay. It just sounds... Entertain yourself. Just trying to have fun here this morning. Hey, uh, interesting stuff going on in the news, for heaven's sakes. Apparently ISIS was behind the big Texas showdown. Well, it's what they're saying. The shootout. I don't know. Do you want to claim something that failed so badly? Well, you got to trust ISIS. Really? Why, Why would they lie about this? I don't know. They they're saying they were responsible. They were they're taking so, responsibility credit yeah. for the shootout that actually never even made it into the actual parking lot. Parking I think. Lot. Yeah, I think from I, the the information I've read, it sounds like it remained out on a uh, access road, never yeah. made it into the parking lot, and two guys in body armor with automatic weapons were taken out by a uh, police officer with a handgun. Yeah, and maybe a couple members of a SWAT team yeah. were off in a, a distance. Well, and they, yeah, they had some. They had these automatic rifles and stuff. It was going to get crazy. But the, the, I just heard an interview on CNN where they're like the sheriff there said this this officer, not the one that got shot. He got shot in the foot. Yeah, but another officer pulls out his handgun and basically saved a lot of lives. He thinks because this could have gone crazy. He Walker Texas Rangered it. <laughs> I mean, one guy with a gun. Yeah. And these two guys with automatic weapons. You'd think the guys with the body armor have an advantage. Yeah. But instead, I... Well, there's the element of surprise. Like, they didn't know there would be so much security right there at the front driveway. It was a police car parked across... Yeah. I don't know. It just seemed like it was... It was a, cool. I mean, it's if you think about it, that's probably why they're taking credit for it, because they want everyone to be afraid. See? See, Americans? The sad We're p- coming to you. I guess the sad part about this is I just expect these to be more coordinated. Oh, yeah, no. no. If you're going to attack, if you're going to have you know, body armor, weapons, extra ammo in your car, it seems like you have a plan. Yeah, no, that, that's the mistake. That plan right didn't get by step one, it seemed like. Well, so, it, and then ISIS wants to claim it. Like, that was us. Like, but oh, oh. They're terrorists. They're just trying to create fear. Yeah, and this is supposed to make us afraid, and it should. But yeah, I, I'm not. I think they're actually investigating now to see if they really did. Was there enough communication between ISIS and this dude? Yeah, they don't know, and ISIS didn't give any details. As it says, um, an audio statement on on the ISIS group's Albion radio station said that the two soldiers of the caliphate carried out Sunday's attack and promised to deliver more in the future. The statement did not provide details, and it was unclear whether the group was opportunistically claiming the attack as its own. Yeah. In the attack, Elton Simpson and Nadir Sufi, roommates in an apartment in Arizona, allegedly opened fire at an unarmed guard at this uh, Garland Curtis Colwell Center where the uh, the Muhammad caricature contest oh, was going on. An unarmed guard. So the guy that got shot in the foot was probably an unarmed guard. He was. I think he was the guy that was... Um, 
a school district. They keep they oh, see, yeah. saying he was from a local school district, but he was you know he was just like he was the security time. guard guy. Probably yeah, yeah. He, he was the first guy to you know instead of meeting, meeting you at the gate with a gun, you have a guy that comes in and finds out who you are. But then there's other people around name, that were please. armed. Can I get your name? Yeah. Are you on the list? You're not on the guest list. I'm sorry. The police inside the exhibit were uh, the people inside the exhibit were unaware of the attack until the police told them later. The FBI had investigated Simpson since 2006 and accused him of trying to fly to Somalia to wage jihad in 2009. Wow. He was given three years probation. He lied to the uh, FBI when they talked to him originally in back in 2009. Yeah. So he decided, uh, I guess, since then to try it again. Well, and this all goes back to the right to speech, freedom of speech. And there, I mean, even the freedom they're saying now of just some people would say stupid speech, offensive yes. speech, they still had the right to do it. But this is what caused the whole uproar, right? Because it, you know, you're making fun of a religion's prophet. Yeah. A which, religion who views any sort of slight his direction as I mean, being worthy of death. Right. Remember, this is already... <laughs> The Charlie Hebdo incident in uh, France. I mean, this is it's a big deal, and yeah. so they were making fun. But they're saying, you know, we have the right to to have a contest right. where you can draw the Prophet Muhammad in a caricature form. Yeah, That's I, I, I not a respectful form in an embarrassing way, and. Yeah. So, again, people have the right, even if it's stupid speech, you have the right to step on a flag. You have the right to do stupid things. You just don't, you know, you also have the right to have somebody come, you know, get mad at you, protest, not necessarily shoot you, yeah. but get mad. You have the right to people for people to protest I just, what's I, going on. I, I find the when people do this and they provoke a reaction and then they're surprised about the reaction they provoked yeah. – like, yeah. look what you were doing. Of course people are going to be unhappy with that. Yeah. that's And maybe you'll find a couple out there in all of society that are going to decide to step up and do something. Well, I mean, it's it's real. I mean, the, the one that always comes up in the news is the example of, you know, people are making fun of the Mormon church with the Broadway show. What's that called? The Book of Mormon? Book of the, yeah, the Book the of musical. Mormon show. I mean, and that's offensive. Yeah. And yet they have the right to offend. Right. So as a Mormon and LDS, okay, it's just not healthy. It's not productive. Right. But it's you're Do you have right. your tickets? It's coming to town. Yeah, it's coming to town Thursday. I'm going to be going Thursday. <laughs> no, no tickets there. But, Man. you know, what do you do? In other news, contradicting reports came out of Baltimore about gunshots fired at or near a black man who was confronted by police Monday. A Fox News crew was on the scene and claimed to observe a young black man, uh, male, running away from the police before being shot. Fox later apologized for the inaccurate report. The police say the man had a revolver and there was a sound of a discharge. They said that he has no injuries but was placed in an ambulance yeah. out of abundance of caution. Uh, tear gas was used on the crowd as police cleared the intersection. Attorney General Loretta Lynch will be in Baltimore today. Uh, rumors quickly spread through this crowd. They're shooting people. They're shooting people. And, and they, there's interviews like, here we go again. They're shooting. You know, What, didn't a gun just drop and fall? He had it in his pants yeah. and it fell. It's hard to run with a gun. They're kind of heavy. And, and just because uh, they, there was a discharge. And, and again, the police didn't fire any, any shots off. Something yeah. happened. It's still unclear. Maybe the, the Ca- gun went off caused a little mini, mini moment. Moment. They loaded him into an ambulance. So people good. just assume they shot somebody yeah. and they're trying to hide it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. This all had to be 
unwound yesterday, and it it just shows that uh, the place is still really yeah. uh, the tension's really high. Yeah, and even the smallest little thing can set off Baltimore right now. So it's like just put your guns away. It's Be like my, it's like Mike Pond in the morning. The smallest thing can set him off. Don't try me, guys. So you can hear it. You and, can hear it in his tone. And this comes a day after a New York City police officer was shot in the face. Yeah. As he approached an individual that he saw that had a gun in his waistband, and the guy turned around and shot him in the face, and that guy's now died. He died uh-huh. uh, either last night or early this morning. This that is police crazy. Officer, so yeah, it's and so the cops are on edge. Yeah, as you can imagine. But uh, hopefully, cooler heads have uh, prevail here, yeah. and we can uh, dial this down a little bit. Man, um, you know this is somebody's got a lead here. Somebody, we need a leader. Step hey, up, Governor Mike Huckabee is officially joining the 2016 presidential race Speaking today. Of leaders, is that a leader Mike for you? Huckabee's in. I don't know. He tends to rile people up. So he's he's the 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 third to get in the race. The sixth Republican overall. Yeah, overall. How come a, three of them got in yesterday then? Or did did Huckabee get in today? Huckabee's going in today at, 11, at 11 a.m. Eastern. Fiorina and Carson yesterday. Carson yesterday. Oh, and Huckabee today. Huckabee today. He's expected to gear his second presidential campaign towards working class social conservatives and claim that he is the best in the best position to fight the Clinton machine. Wow. And little known fact? You mean the Hillary Clinton machine. This is the Clinton machine. Yeah, I don't think we should just use one name. The... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Hillary back to that again. machine. Hope, Arkansas. Yes. Is where Huckabee is from, but it's also where Bill Clinton's Bill, from. Yeah, from They're both hope. in the same place. Yeah. So maybe there's... So this. just think of it this way. There's a lot of hope. Yeah. Um, it, does the GOP know that we're we're not going by numbers here? So it's not... Now it's six to two. Yes. Right? So do they understand... Actually, no, it's more than six, right? Because you've got... He's, oh, that are actually in the race. This so is six, six that's the de- declared. Six declared. Everyone else is collecting two, piles of money without declaring. We'll be getting we'll up talk to about that 16 later. to 2. I mean, if, it, if that's the case, if O'Malley gets in, it'll be like 16 to 3. Yes. I'm sure the GOP can win with those numbers. 16 to 3? Is that how this works? It feels like a shotgun approach. Yeah. Trying just to find one that sticks. <laughs> Somebody's got I don't. A, I don't know if... Yeah. I don't know who... And that's the thing is you get so many people, maybe you get someone that just rises from the... Maybe. The, the the pack and is able to to step forward. So I I want, but maybe it's maybe it's really more about hope. Maybe Arkansas. Yeah. Okay. Is I, something in the water. Do you want to bet he'll play on that? Oh, even though President Clinton played on it big time. Hope. What America needs is hope. Hope Arkansas. Um. Well, good luck to Huckabee. That'd be great. Making the game fun. Six to two so far, folks. This is going to be an exciting race. Hey, would you say, if I put a a microphone in your face and just ask you this simple question, is America still the land of promise? Are we still America the Great? Check your gut on that, because when we come back, we will be joined joined by Dr. Joseph Nye, who is a Harvard professor, dean of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He is a distinguished professor and is uh, actually was the former dean of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He's going to be talking to us about the American century. Is it over? Have, are we done? Are we out of, you know, our, our era of greatness? America. 
Where do we stand in relation to the rest of the world? We're going to be talking to one of the great scholars who studied it, and he's going to be uh, enlightening us to uh, what our hope really is and where it lies. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back with Dr. Joseph Nye talking about the American century after this break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, by the end of World War II, the United States and the former Soviet Union were left as the only powerhouses on the global stage. And with this, the idea of the American century took hold, and the American dominance in political, economic, and cultural beliefs spread throughout the world. But where are we today? Do we still have the same influence and power in the world today? Uh, we have Dr. Joseph S. Nye, Jr. He's a university distinguished service professor at Harvard University, former dean of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Today he's here uh, joining us talking about um, his his book, uh, Is the American Century Over?, um, that, uh, that's, that really addresses the, the current state of American power and uh, and how we fit into the global um, the global power structure and hierarchy. Dr. Joseph Nye, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Nice to be with you. We are honored to have you, sir. This, I, I love this article. We found it on Harvard, uh, on the Harvard site. Um, talk about this whole American century. Where, where does the idea of the American century actually come from? Well, it's interesting. It was Henry Luce, the famous uh, publisher of Time Life, who coined the phrase in 1941. Oh, wow, yeah. And uh, he used it as a political slogan to get the United States to enter World War II. Uh, He felt the American isolationism of the 1930s was a mistake. And uh, so in 1941, about, uh, let's say, 10 months before Pearl Harbor, he coined this term. And uh, it was basically to try to get us to live up to the fact that we were the most powerful country and that we weren't stopping Hitler from dominating Europe. Right. So that's where it started. Okay. And, and, and you, you wrote a book, Is the American Century Over? Is that the name of the book? Yeah, the book is, um, is an effort. It's, a, it's blessedly a short book and <laughs> written for a general public, I mean, for people who want to try to understand the right. position of the world today. Um, it, it's an effort to try to survey where we've been in the last 70 years and to ask uh, where will we be at the end of Luce's uh, uh, century that he proclaimed, uh, which would be, of course, 2041. Yeah. And a lot of people think that China's going to pass us and we're in decline and so forth. And what I show in the book is that the United States has worried about decline many times before, and uh, that worry is more a question about psychology than, than facts. In the 1950s, after 1957, when the Soviets put up Sputnik. We thought the Soviets were passing us in right. the 1980s when the Japanese manufacturing was doing so well. We thought the Japanese were uh, 10 feet tall. That's right. And uh, after the Great Recession of 2008, but China was growing so rapidly and the United States was in a slump, we thought that China was going to pass us. The polls show that half of the American people thought that China either was more powerful, soon about to become more powerful than the United States. And uh, what I argue in the book is that uh, these tell us more about American psychology than mm. about reality. 
It's, we have a little inferiority complex, it sounds like. Well, or, or, or a sense of uh, anxiety. Uh, there you go. You yeah. know, it goes all the way back to the uh, founding fathers. I mean, Washington and Jefferson and Adams were worried that uh, uh, we would not be able to preserve our republic. Hmm. Uh, they feared that we would go the way of ancient Rome and lose our republican virtues. But overall, uh, you're, you feel like we, we're still standing tall. Well, I think the United States is doing better than people realize. Um, if you look at uh, some of the measures of, uh, of, of relative power and strength, the United States, uh, we have a, uh, a good demographic situation. We're one of the few rich countries which is not going to slide in terms of population, but going to hold our position. In energy, uh, we've gone from sort of a what looked like a hopeless dependence on imported energy to a situation in the 19 in the 2020s mm-hmm. where uh, the uh, experts project that North America may not be importing energy. If you look at science and technology, we're at the forefront of technologies like bio and nano and information technology that are going to be central to this century. You look at universities, uh, even by Chinese calculations, 15 of the top 20 universities in the world are in the United States. So essentially, there are a lot of things that are going for us. Uh, we also have a lot of problems, but yeah. uh, if you look at the strengths that we have, I think that uh, uh, there's undue pessimism that's uh, current in the country. You you actually call those hard power versus soft power. Um, the hard power, are those the ones you listed, like energy, science, uh, right. military, technology? So on the hard, on the hard powers, we, we're really strong. Teach us about what you meant by soft powers, and how are we doing as far as that's concerned? Well, power is the ability to affect others to get what you want, and you can do it three ways. You can do it through uh, coercion, uh, sticks. You can do it through payments, carrots, or you can do it through attraction and persuasion. That's what I call soft power. And uh, the United States is doing well on hard power, as I mentioned, but we're also doing pretty well on soft power but not in all areas or all regions. For example, if you look at public opinion polls uh, to measure the attractiveness of countries, uh, the United States is doing better than China in Asia. Uh, But if you look at the Middle East, uh, the United States' attractiveness to countries in the Middle East has been going down, um, partly for reasons that relate to the region, partly because of our policy, which is not always popular there. Right. If you look in uh, uh, areas like uh, Africa or Latin America, uh, you get a mixed picture. Um, uh, in Europe, we do pretty well. Uh, so our soft power, I think, is um, has its ups and downs, but we still probably have more than most countries in the world. And we may have. Did, did we spend a lot of it with the Iraq War and and all of that? It seems like we may have, you know, lost a lot of that. The Iraq War was very definitely costly in terms of our soft power. You can you can measure it in the public opinion polls. Uh, the United States lost about 20 to 30 percentage points of attractiveness in uh, all the major countries of Western Europe, uh, and even worse in the uh, in the Muslim world. Yeah. So yeah, it did cost us a fair amount. And, and yet, yet it's still um, it's still we we still seem so attractive to many. I mean, just our. I guess our media and our, um, you know, our movies, our technology, our universities—it's still—it's still a draw. That's right. A lot of what makes the United States attractive is 
not government policies, but is the uh, uh, our our society. And uh, if you look at uh, our attractiveness, it, it comes from everything from uh, uh, Hollywood to uh, universities to uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and right. other foundations that are that are doing good. So. A lot of our soft power comes from our civil society, not necessarily from the government policies. Uh, well, again, we're talking with Dr. Joseph Nye, who uh, was a for- is a former dean of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, um, and the author of uh, the new book is "The American Century Over." Dr. Nye, what just what do you what's your take as as truly a scholar in the field of of government and policy? How are we doing politically? We always joke about it on the show. It just it just seems so chaotic, and it and it seems like we're not necessarily at the apex of of incredible leadership politically. Tell me what what's your take on it? Well, I think in the last uh, decade or so, partisanship in Washington has yeah. become worse, and it's led to a, a fair amount of gridlock and difficulties. Uh, but it, it's worth keeping it in some sort of historical perspective, which is that uh, American government was designed uh, not to be efficient, but to preserve liberties. And uh, so checks and balances and making it difficult to govern or to do anything goes right back to the start. It's worth remembering when we people were complaining about uh, Obama and the, and the versus the Senate on the current treaty with Iran. Right. It's worth remembering that... Uh, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington's Secretary of State, opposed Washington on the uh, on his major treaty with England, <laughs> That's the true. Treaty, and uh, tried to get the, the Congress not to fund it. So, so this we, isn't we, new, we've is We've been it? at this for a long time. Yeah. No, in fact, I, I think that it's an interesting perspective. And, and I we'll take a break right now, but when we come back, I want you to talk about kind of moving forward, because I know this partisanship, you know, in our in our government may actually impact our ability to create certain policies with other countries, which might actually weaken our power uh, globally. So I I know you've mentioned that in your book. We'll continue this discussion with Dr. Joseph Nye. Uh, The author of the book, Is the American Century Over? More, more insight into the the current status of uh, our country globally and politically. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Honored to have Dr. Joseph Nye on the phone with us. He is the former dean of the Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and also uh, is the University Distinguished Service Professor at uh, Harvard University. He won a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford University and um, received his Ph.D. in political science from Harvard. He's the author of the book, Is the American Century Over?, and we've been talking to him about, uh, you know what, not necessarily. We've got a lot, a lot going for us. And yet, and we also have a tendency uh, in the United States to kind of doubt or to fear, maybe, if, if we're holding our position. And it's so true. Think about it. Russia, we always thought that they, you know, they were taking over. The, J- the Japanese in the 80s, we thought were just schooling us. And, um, and the Chinese today. So, Dr. Uh, Nye, we appreciate you being here. 
It's a pleasure. It really is an honor to have you and to have somebody that uh, has studied this so in-depth. One of the things I know in the book that you've mentioned is is the idea that we we have to lead. We We can't afford to not participate in the process uh, and, and, in, and in legislation or, I guess, in, in treaties with other countries. And talk to us about our role and our necessary role in leadership. Well, I think uh, if the largest country, which is the United States, doesn't uh, take the lead, it's not clear who will. For a small country, they, it's not in their capability, and it's easier for them to be a free rider. So if you want stability in, uh, in the international economy or an uh, international balance of power, the U.S. is crucial. But we don't always live up to it. I mean, we were talking earlier about the white political gridlock. Uh, right. Um, take the Law of the Sea Treaty, uh, which was agreed to back in the 1980s, but the United States has never ratified it. So with, right now there's a dispute with China about the South China Sea. And yeah. It, we appeal to the Law of the Sea Treaty and saying that China's position is not consistent with it. And yet the Senate hasn't ratified it. So the Chinese will point back to us that yeah. they've ratified it. Uh, we haven't. Yeah, don't uh, quote a lot. Or, yeah, a treaty you didn't sign. So, you know, and it's being blocked from the Senate by very narrow interests. You've had, uh, you know, chairs of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, former Republican secretaries of state all testify in favor of this, saying it's in American interest. But a few senators who say, oh, it's giving up too much sovereignty, means that we're not leading on this issue. Hmm. And we see that, don't we, in other treaties, in the Kyoto treaties? I mean, isn't that why we're afraid to do some of these things? Well, it's it's very difficult to get a treaty through the Senate. You need a two-thirds vote. But even uh, uh, even on executive agreements, uh, uh, we haven't done as well as we should. For example, in 2010, uh, the United States agreed with the other countries in the group of 20 to increase somewhat, not a lot, somewhat the Chinese share of votes in the uh, International Monetary Fund and World Bank. Hmm. And this wouldn't have cost us much of anything. Um, But uh, we haven't been able to get Congress to go along with that uh, agreement that we reached internationally in 2010. The net result is that the Chinese then announced this past year they're going to set up their own Asian infrastructure uh, investment bank. Uh, because Congress has basically sat on its hands on something which uh, has hurt American leadership. And really, it's something that it seems like the majority of Americans don't even know about. That's true. The majority of Americans don't know about it, and it won't cost them much. Right. It's not even a majority of the uh, Congress who who was focused on this, but a small blocking minority can, uh, can prevent us from exercising leadership. And and yet we also have all of these other entities or countries even that are starting to, to rise in power. India, Brazil, Indonesia. I mean, there's a lot of other players. And then you even kind of distinguish between uh, – I, I don't know how you distinguish them, but, but players, countries, um, true actors that are you know government-sponsored, and then non-kind of government entities. That's right. You're seeing the, uh, the whole world is becoming much more complex. There are, you know, f- three times or four times more countries in the world than there were in 1945. <laughs> but in addition to that, you have a lot more non-governmental actors, whether it's uh, uh, benign ones like CARE or, or uh, uh, Doctors Without Borders, or whether it's malign ones like uh, 
uh, al-Qaeda and the terrorist groups. Mm. Uh, and there are just a lot more players in the game. This makes it much harder to get things done. Indeed, I argue in the book that uh, uh, the problems of leading in such a complicated world are uh, greater than the problems of being passed by China. Well, and, and even cyber, you know, hacktivists, actor, I mean... Well, cyber is a great example because there you can get all sorts of players, um, whether they're criminals or terrorists or just private hackers uh, who can play in the game uh, and cause problems for nation states uh, without paying very high costs themselves. And and it seems like, too, another place where we would probably need some treaties or some global agreements in, in how things are going to happen, and yet, again, we might have an aversion to signing any of those. Well, it's a slow process. Uh, we are indeed uh, working on it. The uh, uh, State Department has a, a special uh, representative for negotiating uh, uh, rules of the road for cyber, and he's a good, good person, but it's a slow process. You, you hold up one of the great uh, maybe attractors, uh, and maybe it's the merge of um, – our soft and our hard powers is our ability to organize and, and create coalitions, which you you believe we really need to to become even better at. That's right. I mean, what what the, a lot of the strength of the United States is being able to get others to work with us. Um, we sometimes think of power as being able to order others around, mm-hmm. power over others. But actually, many of the things that we have to deal with are going to require power with others to get others to cooperate with us to get things done. And the good news is that we are pretty good at creating alliances and networks. Uh, there are about, uh, we have about 60 alliances. Uh, China has just two or three. So that's a, wow. that's a virtue that we have. Yeah. We got to maintain it. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess a lot of that's based on our, our history 50 years ago, was it? I mean, right. Well, yeah. a lot of it's, I mean, something like the NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Alliances, organization is um, uh, goes back to 1949 but uh, we're we're pretty good I mean at, at maintaining alliances our alliance with Japan has uh, goes back to 1960 and when Prime Minister Abe was here in Washington last week um, uh, I think that alliance was stronger than it's been before yeah so there is some good news in this again we're talking with dr. Joseph Nye um, former Dean of the Harvard's Kennedy School of Government author of the new book, Is the American Century Over? Um, just a great resource, and we're, again, honored to have him here. One of the things, I mean, one of the, it seems like the United States is funding a lot of these coalitions, a lot of these alliances. Is, do you feel like we're, we're, we're doing, we're, we're properly funding? I mean, are we, are we giving enough money away? It seems that many are complaining we're giving too much money to other countries. Well, what's your take on that? Uh, actually, we're not giving away that much. For example, in the alliance with Japan, uh, Japan provides host nation support for American troops in Japan, which makes it cheaper to station some of those troops in Japan than to station them in the continental U.S. Hmm. Uh, so, I, I mean, the, the myth that we're sort of... Uh, yeah, funding the world. ...all these other countries is popular, but it's not actually very accurate. Right. Where, um, I mean, I know one of the issues, too, is this idea of isolationism, that maybe the United States, we might be putting our heads down and just trying to pretend like nothing else is going on. Is that a take, is that a position we can afford to take? 
No, I think the the U.S. has to live up to its international responsibilities because if we don't, uh, it's not clear who will. And in that sense, I think if we uh, turn inward or grant ourselves too many exemptions, like on the Law of the Sea Treaty, yeah, uh, you're going to see international stability decline. You, you actually call that? It's a great phrase, American exemptionalism. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, instead of American exceptionalism, exceptionalism. we we just exempt ourselves from having to sign anything because in the right. end we think we're going to pay for it or, you know, force it anyway. Um, talk to us uh, about what, what do you see? Just as as the expert that you are in in political science, what, what do you what does Baltimore do to you? What what goes through your mind, Joseph, as you think about? Well, it? I think Baltimore and Ferguson, Missouri, before it certainly hurts American soft power. If you look at uh, at the way the television screens in other countries are filled with uh, with these scenes. Uh, it, it, it definitely reduces the attractiveness of the United States. On the other hand, we gain some attractiveness by our willingness to openly confront our problems, to be self-critical, having a press that's willing to uh, portray that, and um, and having discussions and debates about what can be done to reduce the problems that go along with lack of opportunities in inner cities um, and uh, growing inequality. So I think... Uh, you know, obviously, uh, it hurts us. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, the strength of the United States is if we take it seriously, we can do something about it. What do you think the world thought of us with the Iran um, negotiation and then the Cong- and Congress and in the invitation of Bibi Netanyahu to come and speak? W- what does that look like as an outsider? Well, I think other countries looked at the division between the president and the Congress and said, uh, how can this country get its act together and get things done? But again, to go back to what I said earlier, um, you know, our Constitution set up a framework where Congress um, has a separate and independent voice, and politics leads that to often to, to game-playing, which I think was behind the, the invitation to Netanyahu or the letter from 47 senators to the Iranians uh, warning against uh, doing a deal with the with the United States president, um, you know, it's the, it makes others see us as uh, uh, not well organized or messy. But mm-hmm. um, it's worth remembering that it's that that's the way we were set up. But it's not all that new. I mean, that's that you keep bringing that up, which is such a great point. And it's we're not here to be efficient. We're we're uh, you know our forefathers set it up to get it right. Right. Liberty was more important uh, than efficiency. I mean, they they were concerned that uh, King George not rule over us again, and it made it hard for anybody else to. Hmm. What else is in your book, Joseph? That uh, that just the rest of America needs to know. What uh, what else are we missing? In and what would we gain by reading the book? Is the American century over? Well, I think uh, regaining a degree of self-confidence that we can deal with the rest of the world, that we need to deal with the rest of the world, we can't turn our backs on it and turn inward, I think is important. If you take the uh, situation in East Asia, it's interesting that countries uh, in that region want an American presence because that many of them fear the rise of China and they want more of the United States, not less of the United States. In contrast, in an area like the Middle East, which is going through a set of revolutions which may last for 10 or 20 years or more, 
um, there we can't control that. We can uh, we can try to contain it, to nudge it, to affect it somewhat. But the idea of going into a country like Iraq and trying to run it is just not going to yeah. work. Yeah, especially with all the geopolitical issues and. And so part of it, I guess, is like you're saying, influence it and um, recognize it's going to take a lot of time. Yeah. In, in a sense, we've got to realize that uh, we're not going to control the world. But on the if we don't uh, do our part to help shape it, uh, it's going to be a lot worse world in terms of our interests. But overall, we we should have a sense of confidence as as a country. Yeah, I think we the, the United States often overdoes our our <laughs> declinism and pessimism. Yeah. It, it, uh, on the other hand, the the opposite, triumphalism, which led us into Iraq in 2003, is is, uh, is disastrous. So finding a balance between uh, too much triumphalism or hubris and, uh, on the one hand and too much pessimism or turning inward on the other hand, that's a hard uh, balance to keep properly yeah. in the eye. And a young country, really, right? I mean, we're a That's right. yeah. pretty young country. It's like right. a teenager that just can't quite balance control with excitement. Yes, we have time to go, but uh, we're learning. Well, I think it's fascinating, and we appreciate you, uh, Joseph. Again, Dr. Joseph Nye, and the author of the book is The American Century Over. Well, uh, well researched, obviously, and you know, to 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 have the chance to to learn from a person with uh, Dr. Nye's experience is is truly important. Um, go get the book, Is the American Century Over? And just start learning, folks. We can be confident. We don't have to be, you know, arrogant. But uh, we've been blessed. I tell you that, we've been blessed. We're going to take a break, my friends. Uh, continue some more headlines when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Great, uh, oh, great interview with Joseph Nye, Doctor Joseph Nye. I mean, America. A lot of times we do. We sit there and we wonder, ah, we're getting taken over. My kids are always like, "Doesn't China own us?" A large portion, pretty much. Yeah, they have our debt. Yeah, they own our debt. That's why occasionally you'll hear, um, but we never pay our debt. So there's some financial. Tips coming down from China to our government because they own our debt. And they go, yes, sir. Dear well, United States yes, of America, please pay your debt. <laughs> um, so anyway, rest assured in many ways in the hard forces, military, schools, education, innovation, technology, we're, we're killing it. Right. Soft powers, you know, the ability to lead. We're into 60 different associations globally that um, – anyway – we're doing okay. And our Secretary of State? Oh, yeah. He's sitting on the tarmac in Somalia. He's not leaving the airport because Somalia is not a place you go, you know, running around in cars. He's we, just going to sit on the plane. If you've seen Black Hawk Down, you do not leave do the not airport. So, <laughs> so what's, he, what's he waiting for? He's at the airport meeting with their governmental leaders. They all come to the airport. Yeah. That's the most secure place in the country is this airport. So he's not leaving. John Kerry's not leaving the airport. Is he even going to leave? He's the first his... secretary of state to go to Somalia. Yeah. But he's not leaving the airport. Did he get off the airplane? 
I, I don't know. Probably. I'd keep There's the airplane a, running. Yeah, keep it warmed up just in case. <laughs> just I'd keep my seatbelt on. Yeah, and they're saying they're, this is a – it's to show the, uh, the, the, the people leading these warlords and, you know, to have taken over in, this, the, in the area that uh, we're not – the United States is not abandoning our allies that's... in the government of Somalia. And I'm like, yeah, but we're not leaving the airport. Well, yeah, we're also not actually entering yeah. the streets of Somalia. Did we leave the international... Well, see, wing? that right there, that's a very smart Secretary of State. Well, I don't know if that's his call. It's probably not. He has security. Security. That's great. Lots of people with, with guns. So that's where John Kerry is this morning. He's if you're wondering, he's on, he's on his airplane. Your favorite, uh, you know, polling, if today was election day... Yes. Who would you vote for? Gandhi. Wall Street Journal and NBC News. Despite controversy over her use of personal email and donations... And the Clinton Foundation, Hillary Clinton, Trump's top-tier Republican candidates in a hypothetical early election matchup. Top-tier of those running? Yeah. So of so what, does do they give the numbers? I mean, she's the only one with major name recognition. Her popularity has wavered among Democrats, but her favorability rating has ticked up six percentage points since March. Hmm. So. Would you, here's the question of all questions. Ladies, would you let Hillary hold your purse? Is that trust? That's a trust issue. It used to be. They used to say, would you let, would you let the Clintons babysit your child? Okay. And everyone would say, well, yeah, Hillary for sure. Bill would probably take her to McDonald's back and in the day. In a movie I saw this weekend is yeah. could Hillary hold Thor's hammer? Is she worthy <laughs> to hold Thor's hammer? The answer, probably not. I don't know if anyone is. Can anyone actually lift Thor's hammer? You have to watch the movie. Do you? Yeah, someone can. You've already seen it. Oh, of course. You're an addict. Yeah, so it's a good kind of addiction, though. Uh, someone else can hold. Okay. You'll I see? think I now know what I'm doing this weekend. Just watch the movie. It's a good movie. Okay. Uh, Bill Clinton claims no capital gains. Um, he was on the Today Show, says he's taken almost no capital gains over the past 15 years, but his tax returns showed that between 2000 and 2006, the couple made almost $400,000 in capital gains. But he didn't take any of it. His Monday interview uh, was meant to defend the finances of the Clinton Foundation, which has come under fire for accepting foreign donations. He says, I give 10% of my revenue off the top every year to the foundation. And Hillary, in the year she was there, gave 17%. She, yeah, she above and beyond. So, And in other news, uh, Hillary Clinton will be testifying later this month in front of a special panel about the attacks in Benghazi that killed four Americans and also about her email practices. Okay. So that will continue. So they're bring, yeah, they're bringing her in. They're going to You were you were asking in the break for stories that uh related or went necessarily the other direction from our previous guest. Yeah, do, do do we do we actually have stories that support or go against the idea that America's strong? Federal Election Commission Chair Ann Revell uh, tells the New York Times speaking of the 2016 election, I never want to give up. But I am not under any illusions. People think the FEC is dysfunctional. It is worse than dysfunctional. The body is made up of three Democrats and three Republicans, notes the Times, describing the state of affairs. Some commissioners are barely on speaking terms. Cross-aisle negotiations are infrequent, and with no consensus on which rules to enforce, the caseload against violators has plummeted. Oh, wow. 
Uh, it is the Wild West out there in some ways, says one campaign finance lawyer. Part of the issue, presidential aspirants looking at you, Mark, or Martin O'Malley and Jeb Bush, are legitimately raising millions of dollars outside the FEC's, or the, yeah, the Federal Election Commission's purview by simple virtue of not having declared their candidacies. They're raising money, yet they're not candidates, so they're already violating the rules. But they're not under the rules because they haven't declared. And the FCC is too overwhelmed to do anything about it. That's right. God bless America. So does that answer your question? Or... Yeah. See, again, this, I think, is the point that <laughs> it's, it just it doesn't matter. Politically, locally, it's a different game than national, or internationally. Internationally, we've got to lead. And maybe that's what happens is when you finally get a president in there, yeah. the – you, we lead internationally. You have to, or you're in trouble. So then but comes the question: to get elected, you got to jump through all these crazy hoops. Yes, or make up your own rules, or push the uh, limits of the system that apparently isn't regulating much yeah. as they're bickering amongst themselves. <laughs> <laughs> as she says, it is uh, dysfunctional. It's dysfunctional. Uh, Bill Clinton also goes on in other interviews saying that uh, he did nothing knowingly inappropriate. We got to pay the bills. I saw an interview with somebody. I can't remember who it was, but they said, what normal person uses the phrase knowingly inappropriate? Well, Bill Clinton. And so how do you how how much trust can you have in a person that uses that phrase? It's just. That's the problem. So if the Clintons are going to continue forward, just know you will spend the next 10 years hearing about it. Really. But nothing knowingly inappropriate. Well, and the Republicans are going to go crazy and throw every scandal they can, and the Clintons will dodge them. And in the end, we'll all end up at the same place. Exhausted. (laughs) Dehydrated. Yes. And knowingly dysfunctional. 10 years older. Yeah. I did not blankety blank 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 with that woman. Yeah. It depends on what is is. We've been parsing this for Yeah. Some... He's good at parsing words. I like it. Yeah. And again, super charismatic. Absolutely. And the world loves him. Right. A lot. That's why he's two able billion to... dollars a lot. <laughs> anyway. Uh okay. So interesting so I again I now when I read the news I'm like, Oh yeah, America's we're dead. But then we listen to the Harvard professor, Dr. Joseph Nye, and he's like, we're good. I mean, not, not ideal. We've got a lot of work to do, but we gotta, one thing we've got to do is get serious about our politicians. Um, we're going to take a break, my friends. Hour number one. It's in the can. Piece of cake, this show, I'm telling you. just gets easier and easier to do. Uh, coming up in the next hour, we'll be talking about the dangers of distracted driving and uh, give you some tools and some rules for the road. You won't... Uh, you know, you got to know what to do with your kids so that they can remain safe as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back after the break. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your coach, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. 
We do what we can every Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern Time, to give you the tools so you can live a healthier life, live longer, love stronger, and lead the people that are around you. Folks, it's life, and it's yours, and it's the only one you're going to get. So instead of just throwing a bunch of news at you, we like to give you some actual tools, something you can take away today, every show, uh, to go make your life better and brighter. Welcome to the program. We've got a great uh, guest coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, Peter Kissinger will be joining us. He is the president and CEO of the AAA Foundation for Traffic and Safety. He's going to be talking about a study that they've done about the dangers of distracted driving. The interesting thing, back in the day, when I was a kid driving at 16, many, many moons ago, you the worst thing that could happen, you know, is your A-track gets stuck. That's nothing more distracting than trying to get your A-track tape out of the A-track tape player. Right. Because you had to use your whole body. You had to put your leg up on the console. Get leverage off yeah. the dash. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't drive with one leg on the console, except, no. I mean, actually you can, because apparently a lady I was I passed today had her legs up on the on the dashboard. That's, that's yeah, it's safe. It's interesting, right. Yeah. See, my father, when I was a kid, he would uh, get his mug. Yeah. Big, big, massive his, two liter, well, not yeah. two liter, but, you know, a big 32 ounce mug. His keg. And he'd open it, and he'd pour his drink. Like right. a, while, a yeah, while Coke, driving. Pepsi, whatever. Pour his drink while driving and then put the lid back on all while driving with his knees. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No problem. My favorite thing in the world is to drive with my knees because my kids are like, Dad, who's steering? And I'm like, angels from heaven. You're like, look, no hands. <laughs> no hands. Yeah, so I, I've seen distracted driving. See, isn't that crazy? I mean, we were only going 75. But I would say my father pouring a drink was safer than texting. You, yeah, or sure. email, well, or, or having your father text. Right. I mean, talk about that's <laughs> that like a death for, sentence <laughs> forever. <laughs> that's what's funny is, but we're going to find out which which is more dangerous. Like the teens, are they more dangerous? Are they more likely to get distracted, or the seniors? Hmm. Right. Which would you think? I don't know. I the videos. The, did you see the videos that the, I think it was AAA that did the videos where um, they had a camera on the rearview mirror. Yeah, you'd, oh, yeah. You'd see the kid get a text, and he'd look down or look uh, away and look around and yeah. then get T-boned or something, get hit. And... Horrible. <laughs> that's, I mean, really, that scares me to death. Yeah, putting a kid in the car. Yeah, and with phones and with five other kids who all have phones. And then they said, the, I think the, the studies that came out were talking more that the other kids in the car ended up being the, the bigger distraction. Yeah, that's why I've always asked my kids not to have friends. Yeah, just just don't. I mean, it's them. horrible for their social life, but man, safer than ever driving. <laughs> we don't give our kids phones or friends. No friends. No phones. No friends. Well, I'd like to wish you a happy Cinco de Mayo. Oh, Cinco de Mayo. Oh, that brings back memories of uh, other fifths of May. <laughs> no, just living in Argentina. <laughs> oh, okay. They would talk about. They would. They wouldn't really celebrate Cinco de Mayo, but it's not really their it's not their holiday, holiday at all. But it was, but it was <laughs> has nothing to do with it, them. It meant something. It was different. So, what does Cinco de Mayo? What is it celebrated for? Uh, the fifth of May, of course. But there is actual an event in history that um, it's commemorating. I'm going to bet uh, Cinco de Mayo Mexican okay. Independence Day. No, that's on uh, September 16th, and a common misconception. Dieciséis de septiembre. Yes. 
that didn't have the same ring as Cinco de Mayo. No. Uh, was it the day the tortilla was first created? No. Because that, my son lives in Mexico, and mm. that is his favorite day, tortilla day. He's gained a lot of weight eating tortillas. <laughs> Lots of tortillas. Okay, so what does Cinco de Mayo, what's it for? The uh, Mexican army's unlikely victory over French forces at the Battle of Puebla, May 5th, 1862. The Battle of Puebla. Not Pueblo. No, there's an Puebla. A. It's female. It's female. <laughs> it was the female war. Uh, interesting. We're all like, wow, How come I, I've never heard of that? Yeah, That's interesting. It's kind of – well, it's taken on a life of its own beyond this battle. Plus, uh, yeah, now it's just a great day of celebration. Yeah, so today it's observed as a national hol- – it's actually not observed as a national holiday in Mexico. However, all public schools are closed nationwide. In Mexico. Yeah. Excellent. So they don't celebrate – they don't celebrate it as intensely as it's celebrated here. Really? Yeah. But they do get a day off of school. Yeah, it's a day. It's great. It's it's, it's but like, it's but it's, it's like, like Labor Day. It'd be like yeah. Well, no, Labor Day is is something that's celebrate more like President's Day. Okay, there's some people that get President's Day off. Yeah, you know. Do we? But do we get President's? Day? I I don't know. I don't. I just wait till someone tells me, and then I don't show up. <laughs> uh, it was first celebrated in the U.S. by Mexican miners in California in the 1860s when they oh, heard cool. the news of the victory. Yeah. Over the uh, French forces, Time magazine reports that Cinco de Mayo started to come into vogue in the 1840s, in the 1840s in America during the rise of the Chicano movement. Okay. And the celebration of, of May 5th really took off in the 80s when marketers, especially beer companies, capitalized on the celebratory nature of the day and began to promote it as a party day. <laughs> See, nothing, <laughs> nothing says holiday more than a beer commercial. There you go. So, so once they got their grubby hands on it, it started to take off. Yeah. It wasn't about the war. It wasn't no. that it's like um, they had conquered the French in Puebla. It was more about, hey, Tecate, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> a like beer commercial. Everyone's Irish on St. Patrick's Day. Okay, yeah. Right? It's yeah. that kind of thing. That's just sad. So We should celebrate the victory. The and it's war. Tuesday, so it's Taco Tuesday. Taco Tuesday. I need to go market for some restaurants somewhere. This is a good day. Yeah. Even if you don't drink beer. Taco Tuesday. Trying to Cinco see. de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo. My favorite day is Ocho de Mayo, which is my birthday. <laughs> Just letting you guys know so you can put it on the calendar. Ocho de Mayo? Ocho de Mayo. Okay. Eighth um, of May. Should we do something? I know. I know. I know. Don't You don't need to put up the H, eight, Mike. Ocho, eighth of May. I, I think we should probably do something. Okay. We'll something think about it. big. We'll think about it. We might just forget. Maybe Don will get me a cake or something. A new Wall Street Journal NBC poll found that Americans don't think this year's racial tensions will stop with Baltimore. No. A full 96% of respondents say that it will be likely there'll be more additional racial disturbances this summer. Really? Yeah. Did you see the CBS poll says worst race relations in 21 years? Yeah. In 20 years. CBS New York Times poll said 61% of Americans characterize race relations in the U.S. as bad, highest since 1992. Apparently, race relations are horrible. They're bad. They are bad. They're having... But part of it is we just need to understand what's going on. We need to understand. This is complex. Don't just sit there and think it's because of a race or one race or another race. It's how we are not getting along. My mom would say, can't you two get along? She'd say it like that. In less important news, but important to someone. Changing the subject. 
There are a few Star Wars characters that are uh, hated and despised, <laughs> but none more than Jar Jar Binks. That's exactly who I was thinking. Excellent. The clumsy, glibbering, gibbering alien who made splashy debut in the Star Wars Episode One in 1999 yeah. was wi- so widely hated that an editor painstakingly cobbled together a widely distributed recut of Episode One that takes him out of every scene. Excellent. <laughs> that would just take forever. Uh, what's, what's his name? Jar Jar Binks? So a Jar Jar Binks free version of the show. He doesn't appear in the original three movies. Right. Right. So the new movie coming out, did we need to worry about Jar Jar? Is uh, he gone? He was in the first three. Is yeah. he in? He's not in this, this, the, the middle three or the middle th- or what? Six, what? Four, five, and six. So now in seven, he should uh, be dead. JJ Abrams, the sure director, said he goes, Jar Jar is dead. He goes, I have thought about bringing Jar Jar back, just putting his bones somewhere in the desert, not even drawing any attention to it. He goes, Three people would notice what that is, and but they would love it. So I totally thought about doing it, but he, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't put Jar Jar in the movie. Poor Jar Jar. So <laughs> Jar Jar is officially dead. What did Jar Jar do to everybody that makes him so- – see, we've got – we're not tolerant. Oh. Of a just, watch, just watch the movie. I think it's the way he walks. It's so weird. annoying. I think the problem was in every scene he was in, he would just do something ridiculous. Yeah. And it's like, what, what was but that? What don't was, we all he, relate he, he'd, he'd a little stick bit his tongue to out Jar Jar? Maybe. Are you clumsy and – Yeah. Like have a tongue like a frog that can – Yeah. Okay. Then there you go. You're Jar Jar. I walk with incredible rhythm. Big floppy ears. My ears that – yeah. It looks like flowing hair. Have kind of a pig Latin sort of – Yeah. I feel bad for Delivery. <laughs> you know, it's weird. I swear some uh, – I have a client that I was helping on um, an internet dating site. I was – we were working on her profile. I swear I saw Jar Jar Binks on Match.com. Really? hmm Wow. So apparently he's looking for a date. Okay. And the problem with it is he'd be great until you call him. Yeah. The minute you call him, you're like, ugh. Yeah. The voice. Freak. I like long, melodic walks into Tatooine. (sighs) Jar Jar Binks. Single. Looking for love. We're going to take a break, my friends. When we come back, we'll be joined by Peter Kissinger, who is the president and CEO of the AAA Foundation for Traffic and Safety. We're going to be talking about distracted driving. Now, you already know it's going to kill us if we're not careful. But, you know, what are we supposed to do about others that are doing it? What about our children? And which group, which population is most susceptible to distracted driving? Is it just the teens? Or could it be grandma, grandpa? We'll find out up next on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever listened to a story or a podcast while you're driving and looked at the speedometer and realized that during that thrilling moment in the story, you went a little lead foot on the gas? I had a lady the other day that she'd fly by me. And then I she'd slow down. And then I'd pass her and she'd be on the phone. And then she'd fly by me again and she'd be on the phone. Every time her phone rings, she'd slow down. Uh, Now, if you've ever had that situation where you've drifted a bit to the other lane while texting or laughing with your friends, well, according to a recent AAA study, distracted driving from texting to, you know, or just even hanging out, talking to your best friends in the car 
It's a danger to your driver, your driving. Peter Kissinger, president and CEO of AAA Foundation for Traffic and Safety, joins us now to talk with us about the study. Mr. Kissinger, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Glad to be with you. Great to have you on the show. Now, talk to us about the study and uh, what what we're learning. We know we shouldn't be distracted. That's got to be bad for driving. But what are you learning? Well, let me let me first put our study in perspective. It's important for your listeners to recognize that traffic crashes remain the leading cause of death for teenagers mm. in this country. Each year, they account for almost a million crashes, 380,000 injuries, and almost 3,000 deaths. So this is a serious problem. Wow. 3,000 3, deaths of teens a year. That's correct. And in our study, we look specifically at the reasons that these crashes were occurring by looking at videotape of, from cameras that had been installed in their vehicles. Yep. And we looked at some 1,700 video clips uh, that occurred over several years in several states, uh, mostly in the Midwestern part of this country. And what we found, somewhat disappointingly, quite frankly, is that in 60% of the cases that uh, inattention or distracted driving was the cause of those incidents. Huh. That's an alarming figure, and that's some four times higher than the official government statistics have reported. Wow. Four times higher. Your study was four times higher. Is this the one that you've uh, made some videos of and are out there virally being passed around? Correct. Because we've seen uh, I've fact, seen some of those. The last time I looked at we had something like three million and counting downloads uh, from YouTube. Oh. And that's great because one of the, the first things you need to do to get people to change behavior is to recognize that there's a problem. Yeah. And so in releasing this kind of study, especially with the, the graphic visual evidence from the video clips, we're hoping that more and more teens and more and more parents, more and more motorists in general, will recognize that distracted driving is a serious problem and do something about it. Well, when you think about it, because the videos, they're so jarring because one minute they're laughing, the kid's just laughing, and then the next minute they have terror in their face as they've lost control of their car. It's, Absolutely. It's just... Well, without a doubt, the... The single most alarming statistic in our study was that if you look just at when teens are using the phone and if you look just at the incidents that involve rear-end collisions, in over 50% of the cases, the teen did not take any evasive action. He or she did not brake or steer before they ran into the car in front of them. Just full-on right in. Scary. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And we also know that, uh, again, in that same instance as teens using their cell phones, that eyes off the road averaged, averaged 4.1 seconds. I think you just, in the lead into this interview, you did a, yeah. you were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, number of seconds or whatever that have gone by perhaps when you're driving. But just think about if you literally take your eyes off the road for four seconds, the things that could happen, the distance that you can travel. Oh, during man. that time frame. It's amazing. And it's – so distraction could be anything, really, I guess, that takes your eyes, your mind off the road. Is that how you define it? Right. I mean, uh, we actually categorize distraction into three main types. Uh, physical distraction, taking your, your hands off the wheel. Uh, visual distraction, taking your eyes off the road. And perhaps most importantly, cognitive or mental distraction, which is taking your eyes off the wheel. Hmm. I mean, your mind off the road of the, the task at hand. Um, and, um, 
again, and all three of those are extremely important. In our study, when we looked at teens, the number one cause of distraction were actually other teen passengers in the vehicle. So really, yeah, having kids in the car. Yeah, having kids kids in the car. I mean, again, I should start off by saying that the, uh, the safest your teen will ever be in a car is when they're driving with a parent or a guardian in the car during the permit stage. Hmm. Virtually, there's almost no crashes that tend to occur in that, even though it's obviously a scary time for many parents to go through that <laughs> process teaching their teens to drive. Right. But once that teen starts to drive independently, regardless of age, regardless of whether they're 16, 17, and 18, uh, on average, they, their crash rate is uh, about four times higher than adults. And it's extremely high during those first six months of driving. And that's why it's extremely important for parents to get engaged and to spend as much time as possible with their teenage son or daughter teaching them how to drive. Uh, We recommend at least 70 hours of time in the vehicle with a teenager through a variety of experiences, not just driving to and from school or to and from church, but after the kid gets uh, acclimated to the process a little bit, testing them within in more serious traffic conditions, yeah. perhaps in the rain or adverse other weather conditions. We're again talking with Peter Kissinger, who's president and CEO of the AAA Foundation for Traffic and Safety. He's teaching us about some recent studies that they've done, um, really teaching us that teens, 3,000 deaths of teenagers a year because of traffic accidents and uh, basically 60% of the time, inattention is the cause of that accident. Um, talk about – it's interesting. I have, a, I have six kids, and we've basically taught half of them now to drive. Actually, <laughs> we've taught two, one-third of them to drive. There's, there's one that's driving now that's still learning to drive. Um, it's, so really, it's, it's the parents have to be more attentive – and getting those hours, you say seventy thousand or seventy hours with the teenager in the car, giving them a variety of experiences driving. Absolutely, and first and foremost, uh, it's important that parents realize that they need to be good role models from the moment you have a child sitting in your back seat. You need to be a good role model because whatever you do, your kids are going to grow up to emulate. So if mm. you tend to speed, if you tend to talk on the phone, guess what? Those kids are going to get that same bad habit. It's so true, but once, isn't it? You know, uh, but, but again, it's extremely important that parents get engaged. They work with their children. The best way to learn how to drive is practice, practice, practice. And the best way to do that is either with a driving instructor or with a parent that's engaged uh, that goes through a very systematic process to teach that team so they can gain the experience necessary to be a safe driver. It's... And there is, you know, there are restrictions in this country. There are in, in every state. There is something called graduated driver licensing. Yeah. And they have provisions, for example, that when the, when the teen starts driving by themselves, typically for the first six months, they shouldn't have uh, an excess number of teen passengers in the vehicle. And likewise, they should avoid driving uh, at night, typically, and most certainly they shouldn't be using a cell phone yeah. during those first several months of driving. And all those things are very important. Only, I should say, only 33 states right now have cell phone bans for the young novice drivers. So there are 17 states that we'd like to see uh, close that loophole. And amazingly, only 18 states in the country actually have passenger restrictions that we think are appropriate. So there's, again, a lot of room for improvement. 
But it's also worth noting that, you know, the parents don't need to wait for a state law. The parents can mm-hmm. get engaged. The parents can put those restrictions on their teenage son or daughter regardless of the state law. Yeah, I, we, bought a, we bought a truck, and my kids are all like, well, now we can't take as many people. And I'm like, exactly. That's the point. I don't want a car full of kids in it because it's so easy to get distracted. Um, ta- Absolutely. If, one, if, if they had one teenage passenger, we know from our previous research, the risk of being in a crash goes up by 50%. Mm. Add two, it, go, it doubles. The oh, risk my of heavens. Being in a crash is doubled. Man, and if one of them's like your girlfriend, it probably quadruples. It's it's such a scary thing when you think about it because these are their kids. And I, when I look at our state, we live in Utah, and I mean, it just seems like what you have to do to get a license today is easier than what it was when I got my license. Are they are they just improving the teaching, or are they just loosening the restrictions? Well, I think uh, I suspect from your age, you're probably uh, 45 and had your license for some time. Yeah. And, um, and most of these graduated driver licensing provisions have been put in place over the past 10 years. Mm. And that has probably been where they've been put in place. It's probably the most single, the single most effective countermeasure that we in the traffic safety community have been able to put in place. Okay. Um, and one of the reasons I say that is if you look at the big picture again, uh, in the last decade, the number of teen fatalities have actually reduced uh, due to driving have actually come down by oh, about 50 percent. So, so the, all of those are a result of graduated driver licensing restrictions. So they're getting so it over a longer made, period of time. Exactly. We've made remarkable progress. But again, you know, 3,000 people are still dying every year. There's still a, long, a lot of improvement oh, yeah. that's necessary. Absolutely. Again, we're talking with Peter Kissinger, president and CEO of the AAA Foundation for Traffic and Safety. We're going to take a break, come back, continue this discussion, getting more information, more tools to help us uh, manage this 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 problem and making sure that our children are better informed and uh, less distracted while driving, as well as ourselves as adults. We, we also need to focus just as much as they do. We'll take a break. More after the break right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are joined on the phone right now by Peter Kissinger, uh, CEO of the AAA Foundation for Traffic and Safety. He's teaching us about uh, it's time to uh, focus, folks, and uh, pay attention to what you're doing. When you're driving a 2,000, 3,000-pound vehicle at 75 miles an hour, you better focus and pay attention and the reality is one of the things he's teaching us is our, our kids, uh, they don't necessarily pay as much attention as they need to. Um, 3,000 teens die a year in automobile accidents. Peter Kissinger, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and uh, and walking us through uh, some of this. Is It's not just teens. I'm assuming all of us are probably more distracted just because of our technology use. Oh, that's unfortunately the case. Um, And I do want to explain one thing that uh, is very significant. There actually is a phenomena called inattention blindness. 
which basically means that one can focus, if one focuses on a given task hard enough, which can be either oral, it can be visual, uh, you can actually, your brain can actually get into a situation where you can look at something right in front of you and not see it. Uh. So if I'm so focused on a conversation, I won't see the car stopping in front of me. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons I mentioned earlier that in over 50% of the cases that we didn't see the teen either steer or brake before they ran in the car in front of them while they were on the phone. Most likely, many of those were experiencing, again, what we call inattention blindness. It's counterintuitive, but it's very real. If you go to your computer sometime and your favorite browser and just put inattention blindness in, there are a couple exercises that you can take to demonstrate exactly how powerful that phenomenon is. Wow. Now, you did a study with the University of Utah uh, and talked about some of the effects of cognitive distractions. Tell us a little bit more about that. Is that a different study than the one that you were talking about with the video cameras? Uh, yes, it was. It was a complementary study. We had an ongoing research program at the University of Utah with Dr. David Strayer and Dr. Joel Cooper hmm. examining specifically the effects of cognitive or mental distraction. And what we, have, what we have found repeatedly in the research that we've done there is hands-free is not risk-free. Okay, Although yeah. it's important to keep your hands on the wheel and your eyes on the road, it's most importantly to keep your mind on the task at hand. So really, having a hands-free device where you can talk just, you know, through a microphone um, instead of holding your phone to your your ear, that doesn't mean you're safer. The key is you have to actually be focused on the driving task. Correct. Huh. Does, um, and again, I mean, that could happen at any age. Do you, do you see, what, what do you see maybe the, the seniors, uh, 65 and above, what are they struggling with when it comes to, you know, driving? Uh, well, in terms of distraction, I mean, they, you know, basically senior drivers have a lot of experience, which seems to trump any uh, diminution of their cognitive ability or their physical condition. So the bottom line is, despite the popular myth, senior drivers are actually quite safe. They're safer. With respect to cognitive, you know, with respect to distraction, they tend to be a little better than the rest of us, quite mm-hmm. frankly, which is good because of, because of the fact that when, again, if your cognitive uh, ability decreases a little bit, the last thing you need is any other distraction. Right. Well, yeah, it might even be, too, these younger generations, they're just, they're so into the tech that it's, it really could end well, up killing them. Absolutely. It's Well, it's important to recognize it's not necessarily their fault. I mean, our brains are not fully developed until about tw- age 22, 23, maybe 25. Yeah. And the part that is the least developed is that part which assesses risk through the executive executive functions of the, of the brain. So again, although you and I intuitively, because we've been driving for a while, recognize certain risks, teens have to learn that through experience. Yeah. And so we need to take that into consideration, which is the reason why laws like graduated driver licensing place practical restrictions on those teens until they gain the experience necessary to be safe drivers. And this, there's this illusion that technology is there to protect us. And so if I'm using you know, the speech you know, functions on my texting, 
I, I'm believing that I'm safer because I'm be able to keep my eyes on the road, except that might just be an illusion if my focus and my mind aren't on the road. That's true. I mean, the worst case scenario is if people believe that hands-free devices are, in fact, safer, and then they use them more. Mm. So they have more conversations while they're driving. So really, a dangerous combination. Really, just technology just needs to be off. While you're driving, I often say that the only reason you need a cell phone in the vehicle is in case of an emergency. So while you're driving, turn it off, put it in the glove compartment so you're not tempted to pick it up. Hey, would you also say that you shouldn't drive at 75 with your feet on the dashboard? Oh, absolutely. Okay, because <laughs> I just wanted just to like check. I would that. say you shouldn't. There are some cars where you can you can sing to karaoke while you're driving. Yeah, That's don't, another, no, no. don't do that either. <laughs> you just ought to drive for heaven's sakes. Just drive. Exactly. What happened to the good old days when we when we enjoyed driving? I know. I love driving. I really do. And but it's it's also so easy to get distracted and and even and tired. I mean, I've I start the show really early in the morning, and so I've I've been battling sleep. But sleep's also just as big of a distractor. Uh, about seventeen percent of all traffic deaths are associated with driving while you're drowsy. Mm. And the sad part about it is like something like 40% of the people we survey say they've actually, in their lifetime, they've actually fallen asleep while they're driving. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, in those instances, they live because they woke up before something happened. But right. But way too many happened because of that. Was that 30%? 17. Oh, 17%. 17%. That's crazy. Well, and, and that's the rest of us. I mean, we're out on the road with these these people as well. That is, We are these people. It must be hard in a way, Peter— um, to to work as hard as you all are at AAA Foundation for Traffic and Safety, and then to just you know just keep compiling these headlines of tragic accidents. Well, I think we're motivated by the fact that we see tragedies that are very preventable, and if we can only get uh, little changes made in some cases, we can prevent a lot of those needless tragedies. So, my team, I and my team, come to work every day highly motivated to do whatever we can do to prevent these things from happening in the future. What uh, would you suggest to the rest of us parents? Um, give us kind of a walk through what, what, would, what are the tools that we should be using, making sure our children understand? What should we be doing to you know, dramatically increase the likelihood that our, all will go well with our children? Without a question, I would say the number one advice I'd give parents is to get engaged, and stay engaged throughout the whole process. And if you need some tools, go to the AAA site, look for keys to drive, keys, the number two, drive. There is a whole host of online resources that parents can use with their teenagers um, to improve the learning process and to make them safer drivers. I mean, that's the the key is engagement. The, the ultimate irony is it's the lack of engagement and focus on the road that kills. It's also the lack of engagement as parents that might, you know, impact negatively upon our kids. Absolutely. I mean, I often say that, you know, as a traffic safety professional, I find and my team finds even one death on our nation's highway unacceptable. Yeah. And yet one every 15 minutes or so, which is the st- statistical average in this country, is absolutely an outrage. We as a society are simply too accepting of the status quo. We are complacent. And that carries over to the way we look at at teen drivers. Way too many parents just assume, oh, it's just going to happen. You know, there's, you know, my teen's going to have a crash in the first six months. That's just 
that's just going to happen. Well, we don't need to accept that. Yeah, right. You know, we should be shooting for a target of zero crashes and zero injuries and zero deaths, because only then will we have the necessary mindset to make the improvements necessary. Yeah. And it seems like we want to just hope that technology, you know, if we could just, let's just put a technology in the car that the minute the car turns on, the cell phone turns off or whatever. But again, it, it, it still won't replace the fact that you still have to be focused. So no matter what, we should be teaching focus and attention and just drill that into the heads. And then do you sense there will be future improvements in technology that will change some of this? Well, again, it's uh, one thing that's worth noting is that when we talk to teens, they will frequently tell us, they say, look, it's not the cell phone that's distracting me from driving. It's actually the car that's distracting me from staying connected to my friends. So, you know, <laughs> it's important to recognize that. I mean, yeah. that's the culture that we have. Well, it's life. That's that. right. Right. Now, I mean, there's a lot of improvement being made right now. There's a lot of technology being developed and pilot tested on new vehicles. Uh, there's a lot of uh, systems that are in place to assist the driver, things like lane departure warning or uh, adaptive cruise control. Uh, there are systems being put in place that can actually measure if we're sleepy or if whether we're inattentive or whatever that could warn the driver to, uh, to wake up and take action or whatever. But again, those are yeah. clearly years in the future. I mean, there's discussions underway about moving towards autonomous vehicles where you could literally get in a vehicle and say, take me to X, and it'll just do that automatically. But the here and now is that we need to, you know, we need to stay engaged in the driving process, recognize that there are inherent risks associated with that, and again, keep our hands on the wheel, keep our eyes on the road, and keep our mind on the task at hand. Hmm. Well, it's great advice. It really is. And, uh, Ah, it's just the tragedy of, of having to bury a, a teen, yours or a friend of yours. Um, it's just it's enough to keep it in your mind. And hopefully we don't have to learn it that way. Peter Kissinger, we appreciate you again. Recommend everybody go. Is it to AAAFoundation.org? Is that the best place, Peter? Uh, that's the, our website, and there's a lot of information there. But the one I mentioned earlier was the AAA national site. Okay. Keys to Drive. Keys to Keys Drive. Number two, Drive. Okay. Which is one that's specifically focused on information for parents and teens, and it's customized for your state. So your listeners in Utah can go and click on Utah and get all of the all of the relevant laws and information that they need in their state. Well done, Peter. Appreciate you. Keys to Drive dot com. Ah, folks, we got to pay attention, don't we? Attention 101. It's not just, it's your life that's at stake. Uh, very, very important stuff. We'll take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when you hear those statistics, it's it's enough to scare you to death. Literally, five or three thousand deaths of teens a year. Sixty um, percent of the accidents are caused by inattentiveness, and it's not just a teen problem. I have a very hard time being attentive. My my wife. Driving, especially my wife's like all the time. She'll just grab the wheel while I'm checking something. 
checking my pockets, doing the phone. It's crazy. We almost just forget that you are, you know, you're driving a vehicle. And uh, in fact, interesting, 17% of people admit falling, having fallen asleep. I've fallen asleep. I don't know if I, I, I don't know if it was asleep. It was one second. No, it was 40 people have admitted falling asleep and 17% of all traffic fatalities are a result of falling asleep. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, I got to listen more. I think I fell asleep right then, right when he said that. Pass out during the show. I was driving. I was driving. 40, 40 people admitted. 40% of people, of people admit people, that they have fallen asleep. Yeah. And yet 70%, 17% of fatalities are from falling asleep. Yes. <sighs> it's scary. It's really scary. I used to joke that because I, I have a pretty straight shot. I-15 is pretty straight. Yeah. Just you can sleep. Just ride the just rail. bounce all off the, the guardrails down. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's scary. And then you wake up and you overcorrect and boom, you roll your car. When I was an EMT, anytime I heard of a rollover, I my heart would drop because that's just Dangerville, right? So. Uh, I'm just looking on my uh, my Twitter feed here. A woman, 22 years old. Tweeted too drunk to care shortly before causing a fatal car accident in Florida in uh, 2013. Was sentenced yesterday to 24 years in prison. Uh, so she was too drunk as and she, texting. She, she and was, could she, care less. She tweeted too drunk to care as she was driving oh, man. shortly before. And they, uh, they, of course, used that in the court case. Yeah. And she got 24 years. Well, in jail, and so. apparently. Um, uh, Bruce Jenner is being sued now by the person he hit. Yes. And I, I don't know the whole story behind that, but I just saw that. I mean, it's the reality is, is we all know somebody that's died in a car accident. We've all had something happen like that. And yet we seem to think it's outside of us. I, I was working a uh, ridiculous schedule yeah. of producing a morning show where I'd get to the office at 4 a.m. And I'd work till about noon or so. And then uh, I go home for an hour or two and then come back in the afternoon and work from 2 until 6 or 7. Wow. Doing another job. And uh, I had a hard time sleeping, to, like taking a nap. Yeah. And and I only had an hour in between for lunch. And so I had to get it, get my lunch, and then get Hurry, back to the office. digest it. <laughs> and after about a few months, it wasn't the morning. It wasn't 4 a.m. that was the problem. It was going back. And I would pass out. It was only about eight minutes from my house to work. And at one time, I just dozed off, going down an off-ramp, dozed uh, off. There was a center median, and I popped my front wheel of my truck over yeah. it. And as I hit, it jarred me awake. You woke up. And then I, I, oh, I was holding boy. onto the steering wheel, turned it real quick, and pulled into a parking lot, got out and looked, and my front uh, driver's side tire, or the passenger side tire, was 90 degrees off-center. Really? So you had to crank the steering wheel all the way to go straight. See, but you could have been dead. And when I went back and looked at the situation where I hit, there was a cement pole holding a sign that could have caused some real damage to the uh, the vehicle and possibly me. Oh, and was, I just passed. I just fell asleep, just, dozed yeah. off. You didn't pass out. Not passed out, but I dozed off yeah. and then instantly Which could woke up. And, in the middle of the day. Yeah. This was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, man. That's, I mean, seriously, that's scary right there. It caused several thousand dollars of what damage to the truck. What did your wife say? She was, uh, one, concerned about me. Are you okay? Two, questioned my- uh, What the crud the, were you the, thinking? The logic of working these hours, and then three, what's it going to cost to fix the truck? <laughs> did she, how long did it take for her to talk to you again? Uh, 
There was no, she you know, silent treatment. There was no anger that way. It was just, we have a problem. How do we fix it? Yeah. Very practical. And another situation I was driving. Um, you have a lot of these. Yeah, I know. From uh, Salt Lake to Provo. Yeah. To oh. come, I was coming down here to cover a BYU football practice. Oh, man. Yeah. And I was in one lane. And then ended up in between two cars in the next lane. <laughs> and I have no memory of how I got into that next lane. I apparently drifted as I dozed off. Terry the drifter. That's scary. And, You're and, in between two and, cars. Yeah, and I do things like roll down the window, turn yeah. up the radio. No, I just, just start screaming a... just to try to amp up, get some sort of adrenaline running. And immediately you're just still just down yeah. because you're so tired. You, I just need you just to, need to pull over and right and just take a nap. But eight, I ha- eight minutes would have been all you need. But I had to get down to the all important football practice where somebody <sighs> said that we're just going to focus on this week's opponent and and try to execute the game plan. And you like, almost died. Like fifteen guys say the same thing, and then I drove back because that's how sports reporting goes. I don't know if you knew that. No. When, sounds- when you ask press conference questions, that's the stuff you get. We're just going to keep our eyes forward. We're only looking to the next game. We're just going to focus on us and not worry about our opponents, but then we're going to prepare for, you know, just just a bunch of non, non-answers. non yeah. no, And so it wasn't exactly vital for me to be there, but well, I almost died. You almost died. It's It ain't pretty. As Again, as a guy that would pull up in the ambulance and deal with all of this, It's it ain't pretty. It's an ugly thing. So I, I mean, I forever would wear my seatbelt because I saw so many situations, and even now, if my thing didn't beep seventeen times, I wouldn't get my seatbelt on as fast either. It's just we get we're getting lazy, yeah. and you get focused and you get in your routine and well, nothing your mind happens. is that's right. You Look, go weeks and weeks and weeks, nothing happens, and all of a sudden somebody cuts you off or you cut somebody off. Right. I always really ask tense. I ask everyone in my um, workshops. So it, would you rather stand in a room? Like a carpeted room with a rattlesnake coiled up 25 feet away, just looking at each other. Or drive down the freeway 75 miles an hour. And everyone's like, drive down the freeway. sure. Yeah. And then we we talk about the statistics of the likelihood of you dying in either of those situations, significantly higher. Very few people really die of rattlesnake bites a year. Right. Two, three a year. Maybe six. And most most. of that probably comes down to you stumble across it and you can't get away. You can sit there. If you see the snake over there, I mean, it's scary, no doubt. Yeah. But But they're going to try to stay away from you. They're more afraid of you. Unless you threaten them, they're going to attack. Here, snakey, snakey, snakey. Or the the guy, there's a a kid in Florida, a kid, he was probably in his 20s, but he had a uh, water moccasin. Oh, boy. (laughs) And he had it in his house. Because, you know, it's a pet. A little water moccasin. And he had it close. He went to kiss it. Because that's what you do with poisonous snakes. Well, yeah, I love kissing and my it, snakes. It bit him on the cheek. Oh man! And then almost instantly, his face ballooned, and he goes to the hospital. And the, doc- the doctors are like, "I've never seen this condition before." How did this happen? How did it get so close to your face? And then he's like, "We were oh. snuggling." And then you know, it's it's illegal to keep poisonous snakes without yeah. proper licensing and training and all this stuff. So it's on. Uh, it's on the. You type in that. You type in the details of the story. You can see the photograph on uh, on the internet. It's funny. So we, we've learned a lot. Uh, don't kiss water moccasins. Yes, don't kiss water moccasins. They will bite you. <laughs> 
Dad, what's your what's the greatest lesson you've ever learned? Uh, don't kiss a water moccasin. They will bite you on the face. <laughs> Have I got a story for you? Um, also, but don't drive drowsy. Don't drive drowsy. Sleep. Get some sleep if you have to. If you feel drive. if you feel tired, somebody mm-hmm. else drive or pull drive. over and take a nap. Yeah, I always just say, Marty, take the wheel, and she'll just grab the wheel, and I take a little nap. You're in the driver's seat. Yeah. <laughs> Autopilot. It's fantastic. Um, then we also have learned it's you know kids and distractions, teens and distractions. The number one, it's it almost doubles every time you add another teen in the car with your teen driver. So I'd keep people out of your kid's car. My son's like, I want a motorcycle. That would be safer. And I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, wait till you're riding a motorcycle and trying to text, which would be next. Right? I've, I've watched a guy do that at 70 miles an hour on the freeway. That is nuts. Yeah, We just, just don't. It's like, you're. yeah, you're right. We just, we keep surviving. So yeah. our brain says, this is working. I'm, I'm I'm safe, no problem. They say if evolution didn't take like ten thousand years or whatever to start seeing some sign of it, we would all be terrified of driving by now because yeah. we've all had a bad incident. I mean, I tried to drive through a roundabout, basically going straight. I tried to drive as straight through a roundabout <laughs> as I could, around a bit, and you know it didn't go so well. But that's pretty much clear in my mind. Don't try that again in the snowstorm. We should be learning, but we don't. So get intentional right now. Right now. What do you need to do to make your kids safer? Do you need to go home and focus on it a little bit more? Uh, I looked up the website, keys2drive.com. Wonderful resource that will give just a bunch of different instructions and tools. Locally, they're designed for each local uh, state that you're in. If you go to keys2drive.com, it's a wonderful tool by AAA. Foundation for Traffic and Safety, so you can take care of your family, for heaven's sakes. Let's get more intentional in our own driving. Take naps if you got them. Pull over more um, and keep the kids out of the car. And also turn off your technology. Oh, it's so hard. It's so tempting because that's when you podcast. You got to listen to the podcast. So maybe make sure your podcasts are set up before you get going, before you drive. Oh, it's hard, isn't it? But uh, remember, we're all in this together. If you're messing up your day, there's a pretty good chance you might mess up mine as well. Thanks again for joining us. We're going to take a break, come back. More headlines at the top of the next hour. Uh, This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can on this program to give you the tools to create a better life for yourself, for your family. Folks, uh, there's there's just a lot of opportunities and a lot of us can't see them because we're so caught up in life trying to survive the crazy, hectic, you know, survival issues that we have to deal with, eating, food, taking care of the family. So we bring you the best uh, ideas we can find out there to help you grow and live and and be happier. Welcome to the program. 
Another hour of incredibly interesting stuff. Today we're going to be talking with um, David Wynn, um, who is really, I think, he's, he's a hero story from poverty to graduating from Yale. Uh, it's an interesting story. We're going to find out that you don't need to give up just because uh, you feel like you're down and out. There might be away. And uh, he's he's just got a wonderful uh, lesson, I think, to teach all of us. Also, a little bit later, we'll be talking about doing a hero story um, where a, a young man with autism um, who was told, he's basically, you're just going to only be a janitor. That's all you'll ever amount to. Not that there's anything wrong with being a janitor, but that's all you'll ever be able to do, the doctors told him. And instead, he and his mother found out, uh, you know what, there's a lot of other skills he he had hidden away, and he went and, and made it happen and, uh, and became a painter, uh, literally painting beautiful, um, beautiful artwork. So we'll be talking about him as well. Plus, again, a little visit with our friends from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of this hour, at the top of the next hour, actually. This is uh, the Matt Townsend Show. Here we go. Let's do this. Um, you may have been looking at some of the headlines. You heard about what was going on in Texas uh, now ISIS is taking some credit for the shootout in Texas, and we wanted, you know, we, that's a big deal. If all of a sudden ISIS is saying that they have now infiltrated and have some of their ranks moving from Phoenix into Texas to start shooting people, that's a big announcement. That was a very big announcement um, in the news earlier today. What do you think about that, Terry? Uh, sounds opportunistic. Yeah, because it wasn't a successful Shootout. The the only people that died were the two. They shot up a car. They they what a cop uh, one of the security people there. I'm not sure if he was a police officer, security whatever. Yeah. He was shot in the foot, and I believe I read a police dog was injured. Oh really? Other than that, one uh, a poli- uh, one cop with a gun was able to take out these two guys. Maybe some uh, assistance were... from a SWAT team member that yeah. was in the area. Uh, but but ISIS is taking. You know, they claim responsibility for that simply. But there's it, no proof. There's no proof. That's there's what no the proof FBI that they never... that these that the two men from Arizona went over there and trained, or ISIS was able to communicate with them in any way. Those things will come out in the next few days if there's any track through social media or right. whichever but, way. But at the moment, no, it looks like ISIS is trying to claim responsibility for something that he, happened. The guy that was in the shooting did uh, did have a pledge to ISIS. Right before he died, he 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 took the pledge, the pledge of ISIS allegiance, like a security super what yeah. code security ring from. But the reality is, is again, it's still probably ISIS trying to, you know, create terror. So uh, that's in the news. Um, any other headlines that are big, pressing things we need to worry about? Anything that's just. Uh, we just need well, to. Know. I, I read this this week. We we uh, a few weeks, um, I guess a month ago now. Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas mm-hmm. got the forty-seven members of the Senate, and they signed on to this document. Sent it to the leaders of Iran, saying that when President Obama is out of office, that this treaty we're trying to negotiate with you is going to go away, or right, it, it right. may it may go away. You know, it, it kind of sits with the president, which isn't. Completely the case, or else every treaty we make will just completely right. go up in flames when we, you know, have an election cycle. Um, according to Politico, Republican leaders are preparing to clamp down on Senator Tom Cotton's efforts to derail par- a bipartisan compromise 
on legislation giving Congress review power over the uh, the deal with Iran, clearing the way for it to be passed this week. The Senate is set to resume work uh, uh, today and Monday and Tuesday on the long-considered bill. But lawmakers in both parties agree debate on the measure has run its course. The majority leader, Mitch McConnell, is widely expected to wrap up consideration of the time-sensitive bill and free up from parliamentary gridlock. Mm. In other words, there's games being played to kind of, you know, get get concessions. We heard, uh, was it uh, Marco Rubio? Yeah. He wanted uh, it put in there that Iran has to recognize Israel as a state, something they will never do. Right, right. <laughs> so there was these poison pill type amendments, they called it. And everyone keeps trying to, to insert these and push those. And all they would end up doing is derailing the whole process. Right. Whereas we have a deal with them. Yeah. If we put, if we do our part, they will do their part. Now, is it the best deal? It depends on you know right. what 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 you wanted to get out of the deal. It, it is a deal end, that it, no one has ever been able to get a deal. Yes. I mean, that's a big deal. And so, in that sense, the treaty could be something that is is unprecedented. But we're going to derail it with things that obviously Iran is not going to agree to. Right. Like recognizing Israel as a state. Oh, wow. So they're trying to kind of push those distractions aside and, and make sure this is what our country wants and make and push this this treaty through so it can uh, it can happen. And so we can try to slow down Iran from getting a, yeah. a weapon. Well, poison pills. That's what they're calling them. The poison. poison pill amendments. So that's something that they're I guess it's uh, good to know Congress on. is on it. A new uh, poll captures the truly impressive confusion that marks American politics. As we head towards 2016, just 42% disagree with the statement, the federal government should have very little authority over domestic affairs. 42% say the federal government. They disagree that the federal government should have very little authority over domestic affairs. Huh. All right? Yeah. But when asked about which specific program should be cut... Respondents were much more hesitant. For instance, only 28% agreed that most federal regulatory agencies, like the Food and Drug Administration, should be abolished or significantly reduced in size, while fewer than 15% were willing to say that government programs assisting the elderly, like like Social Security and Medicare, should be abolished. The the, uh, this presents a conundrum for libertarian leading uh, leading Republicans. Uh, as voters are apt to applaud the generalized calls for reduced size and scope of government, but object to specific proposals to actually do so. Hmm. So government's big, and it's it's yeah, too big. It's we horrible. Need, so to Get make it, we it. need to make it smaller would be what you would yeah. assume. But we can't agree on what to cut. So what should we cut? Oh, and then everybody disagrees. Yeah. Get rid of the IRS. Get rid of the cut military spending. Yeah. Everyone's got a different take. Yeah, or the Department of Education, you yeah. heard. People want to trim that. Or... The EPA. Yeah. So Who you, needs them? You want to cut, but we can't agree on what to cut. And when they, when the, the polling, when the, the poll, when they called these people and asked them specifically, what about Social Security? Yeah. Oh, no, we can't do that. Can't cut that. All in favor of just making government bigger then. Or what about, Yay. what if we cut defense? No. no. But government's too big, yes. Isn't it interesting? So we complain, and yet we can't cut a thing. But no solutions. That's right. But I that I, I don't know if that's too surprising, but it's kind of interesting that well, the numbers actually now the prove data out. Is, you know proves it. Um, how much do you think an, like an NFL jersey is? Uh, You're a fan of a team. You get your your I would favorite say team. Ninety dollars. They're between one hundred and one hundred fifty dollars. What? I don't even play for the Jets. Right. 
but you want to get a you <laughs> want to get a I jersey. Why do I need such an expensive? So jersey? you buy a jersey, and then that player whose jersey you just purchased gets traded. Oh, and now you've just spent on 150 bucks yeah. on a player that doesn't even play for your team anymore. But it's a collector's item. Could be. For that 1% of players that so, create collective item memorabilia. Are, should there be some sort of recourse if you have a jersey and yeah, you're— Yeah, a trade-in program. Should there be a trade-in program? Uh, in Philadelphia, there is a—it's uh, called uh, Scully—I Scully, can't say their first name. It's a local sporting goods store okay. in Philadelphia. They are offering uh, a solution to this. It costs $10, but it's jersey insurance. <laughs> if you buy an NFL player's jersey and that player is then traded or gone from the team within 18 months, you bring the jersey back with your receipt and you will, uh, you'll still keep your jersey, but you can also then buy another one at half price. That's brilliant. So you'll keep your jersey. Yeah. You pay 10 bucks, and then for half price, you can pick yeah. up another one. Because the cost, so you're probably just covering their cost. The deal does not include retired or injured players, or in this case, because it's Philadelphia, they don't include the baseball Philadelphia Phillies for some reason. Okay. They, no, the deal has no, no, no. nothing with them, because apparently they trade what if, all the time. What if my player isn't retired, but he has committed a crime and is in prison? Within 18... They did not include... Okay. Is there a felony clause? Criminal felony clause. Okay. Because that's important. Right. I mean, statistically. That was asked in the in the, yeah. the questions below in the comments. Someone go, what about this? Like, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. That's a great... Boy, that's good to know. So, yeah. So, you, there's a trade-in program if you live in Philadelphia does, for your jersey. Does this also include my dog jersey? If I buy a jersey for a Again, Philadelphia player that is actually for my dog... It just talks about humans. I'm okay. not sure about pet jerseys. Okay, because pet jerseys are they're it's a the big, bomb. It's big business, yes. Huge. Interesting. Insuring. I mean, that's not, it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. <sighs> who would... who? Who's going to pay $150 for a jersey? That's lots crazy. and lots and lots of people. That's nuts. Yeah, that's why I don't own one. I'm saying, eh. I mean, you're already paying so much for the tickets. Yes. Well, it's so you can enjoy all the, the, you know, the trappings of the game from your home. Well, plus, I think personally, if you're wearing a jersey of an NFL star, you know your wife's going to think you're hot. Right. It, 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 it looks good. Yeah. They're they're, they're kind of like wearing a tent. She's like, yeah, Matt. Like, are you have you been working out? No, I just bought a jersey for 150 bucks. Did you lose weight? That Plus, jersey. I got a, it's insured for ten dollars more. Is that a double XL? What are you wearing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, babe, when you wear that jersey, I just can't stop thinking about you. Interesting. Good stuff. Good stuff, friends. We're going to take a break. When we come back, what do you think it takes to get into an Ivy League school? Right? You obviously, you got to be a child of a philanthropist or a billionaire right you need the money or do you have to just go to one of those really rigorous high schools well what if i tell you none of that what if it's not about your dna rags to riches story my friends coming up david Wynn will be joining us who went from poverty to graduating uh from yale university up next right here on the matt townsend show Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, is part of your American dream to be educated? 
You know, America has some of the most prestigious universities in the world. In fact, 15 out of the top universities, out of the top 20 universities in the world are in the United States, according to an earlier guest we had. Uh, you know, universities like Harvard and Yale, which, um, you know, it's such an opportunity to get there. Your, real, your career, your life could be set. So what does it take to actually get to these universities? Money, rigorous high school classes, brilliant, uh, you know, gene pool. What uh, what if you don't have any of that? Our next guest, 22-year-old Davis Nguyen, uh, Nguyen uh, grew up in poverty and in circumstances that were far from what most of us would call the picture of an Ivy League student. But somehow he was accepted to both Harvard and Yale universities. This month, Davis will be living his childhood dream of graduating debt-free from Yale University, uh, but said it wasn't money, luck, or even rigorous high school classes that got him there, but rather two very basic questions. Davis Wynn, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt. The honor's all mine. And congrats on graduating. Is it this month you're graduating? Yeah, actually, it'll be in two weeks. Just finished my last classes yesterday. Uh, we have a week off, and then we come back, and then graduation. Holy cow. How cool is that? Okay, so teach us, what what were the questions that we that that what are the questions we need to be asking that got you into into Yale and made your dreams come true? Sure. Would you want to get the questions or the background of how the questions came to? Well, be? let's let's actually uh, let's let's first give me the background and then we'll get to the questions. Okay. So background. So my family immigrated to the United States two years before I was born from Vietnam. So both my grandma as well as my mom are political refugees from the Vietnam War. Hmm. And well, as a political refugee, you go to a country unbeknownst to you, unknown to you, and you pretty much bring whatever you have. And for my family, that was about $200 worth of clothes as well as savings. And Jeez. once they got here, there's only so many places that you can actually live off 200 And uh, because you're a political refugee, there's a list of places you can live. They're usually cultural enclaves where other political refugees happen to be. And the community that my family ended up choosing was a small one in Atlanta, Georgia. So the community we grew up in, very similar to us, about four out of five people are minorities, mostly Hispanic or black. About four out of five live on food stamps or welfare, my family included. About one in five of my friends live in single-parent households, and about one in four live below the poverty line. So about 25% of us live below that. And growing up, I actually grew up with my mom. And so my mom, she never finished third grade. She didn't finish third grade in Vietnam. And she's also disabled, so paralyzed physically. Wow. And we grew up most of my life without a man in the household. And so when I was 13, my grandma... My grandma gave me $20 and asked me how I want to spend it. And so back then, I went on eBay, and I knew that my dream was always to go to college. And then my grandma, even though she never finished high school in Vietnam herself, always said to me when I was five until pretty much even now that education can truly open up the doorway to your career. So similar to how you introduced me earlier, and in my community, the community I grew up in, since we were so minority, so impoverished that people had this idea of what college was, but no one quite knew what it, how to get in or right. what, what to do. So most people, when they think of colleges, I couldn't even list a college now, but the one I could list was Harvard because Harvard just seems to be everywhere. And so when my grandma gave me this $20 for my 13th birthday, 
she asked me to spend it wisely. So I went on eBay and I bought a poster of Harvard University. So it huh. came out to be about 19 something. So I got some change left over. And the poster came a week later. And I remember just hanging the poster next to my, my bedroom. And I would think every day I would look at my poster. It would be the first thing I see in the morning as well as the last thing I see at night. And it would just remind me of my goal to be the first in my family to graduate from high school and then to go to one of the world's best universities. Because in my community, if you even if you graduate from high school, there are block parties all week long. Because, yeah. because most people, their parents never had a chance to finish high school. So it becomes a very communal event. And if you got to college, it, well, it made you a local celebrity. Hmm. So I figured, well, that'd be pretty cool to be a local celebrity. So I'm 13 at the time. So every morning I'd wake up, and of course my mom and I are on food stamps, and since because she's disabled, we can't work. She can't work, so most of the time we can't. If you, if anyone's ever experienced living on food stamps or knows someone who lives on food stamps, it's quite hard. And certain day, certain months, you have to make trade-offs. And I thought this was normal growing up because most of the people around me also made the same choices. But certain days, Matt, I would wake up and I realized that when I turn on the lights, there would be no electricity in my house. Wow. So I'd, I'd wake up and realize, okay, so I guess my mom chose to not pay the electricity bill this month. Or not chose, but she couldn't. And other days, I'd wake up, try to take a shower, and realize there's no running water. And other times, because the electricity is out or because we simply didn't have enough food, I would go downstairs right before school and I'd open the fridge and only find spoiled milk. So certain days, I remember in middle school and high school, even elementary school, I would go to school that day. I was cold. I didn't have a shower, and I was quite hungry. So this is pretty much the situation through I grew up in. Not always at the same time, but yeah. I remember that every couple of months we would have these stretches, sometimes a week, sometimes a day. Well, and none of these, and, Davis, none of these were your – your you had control over you were a, a boy growing up in these conditions this was your mom was doing the best she could she was a, a refugee and i mean this is what's so interesting we we don't always get how you know how little to blame you were for all of these conditions oh absolutely well, great way to put it matt but yes you're, you're totally right as in there's nothing on this i'm a little boy i'm 13 at a time there's none of this is in my control but i realized the thing that was in my control was just the little things. Instead of focusing on what I couldn't control, which, for example, going to the fridge and finding out if the milk is spoiled or not, I decided to focus on what I could control. And the little things like buying a Harvard poster to remind myself of my goal was those little things. Right. And earlier you, you mentioned the two questions. So over time, I would wake up, I would look at my Harvard poster, which is two, uh, two feet away from my bed. And even if I would turn on the lights and nothing would come on, I knew that my post-it was there. So every morning, I would ask myself these very two simple questions. The first one was, what kind of life do I want for myself? And of course, it was the same answer every day. It was, I wanted to make my family proud. I wanted to be the first person in my family to graduate from high school. I wanted to be a person who could go to one of the best universities in the world. And the second question, which I found was equally as important, was, are the things I'm doing today going to get me to my goal? And I realized so many people set goals for themselves, and they try to have these vision maps, these law of attraction, and they think that's enough. But yeah. it also takes doing to get there. And so I would look at my schedule and whatever I was planning to do that day, and I would think, are these things getting me closer to my goal, or are they getting me further away? 
And having the second question just gave me the motivation to and the courage to be able to say no to a lot of what was going on in my environment. So the things I did have control over, for example, many of the people in my community growing up, I remember there's a process where they would just hang out on the streets. And of course, as you grow older, the gangs become, gang initiations become a regular thing. And just simply not caring about education becomes another thing because no one really teaches you that these things aren't normal. And then you grow up in this culture where you believe that teenage pregnancies or going out on the weekends or robbing from other people are pretty normal parts of a childhood. Mm. And I would think every time an opportunity like that presented itself, or even something as simple as just going out to the movies for my friends every day, I would think, are these things going to get me closer to my goal? And of course, I like going to movies with my friends, yeah. but every day it's a little extreme. And I would think, no, I think I can give up going to movies today so I can focus on my studying, focus on my reading, and focus on my essay writing. So yeah. I would have a chance at going to college. Of course, I don't aim to go at Harvard. I mean, I don't think Harvard's ever a given for me at this point. Right, so I right. Figured, I figured if I aim really high, even if I missed, I would aim, I would end up higher than if I aim low and hit my target. It's ama- It really is an amazing story. Um, we're going to take a break. We're talking with Davis Nguyen, who rags to riches, quite literally. Um, a mother who had a third grade education level. Um, she was uh, disabled and a political refugee living on food stamps. And this young boy creates a vision. He's going to Harvard or one of the best universities around. Two simple questions, folks. Uh, what kind of life do I want for myself? And are the things I'm doing today going to get me closer to my goal? We're going to come back, find out the rest of Davis's story. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is, uh, I believe, just a great, uh, a wonderful, inspiring uh, young man and story. Davis Nguyen is joining us. He uh, is the child of a political refugee, a, a mother that was disabled in a wheelchair, paralyzed, uh, came to the United States um, when he was very young, and basically went from food stamps to Harvard, or to Yale, sorry, um, because he had a vision and a dream, and he is, in about a week or two, going to have the chance to uh, graduate from Yale University and, by the way, fulfill his uh, lifelong goal to be the first in his family, not only to graduate from high school, but also to go to college and graduate from one of the top colleges or universities in the country. David Wynn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Seriously, congratulations on the upcoming graduation. Tell us, um, so you you basically, your entire life, you, you put that picture of Harvard up, uh, the poster um, with Harvard on it, and then you'd ask yourself regularly, what kind of life do I want for myself, and are the things I'm doing today going to get me closer to my goal? How many times do you think you asked yourself those questions? Well, good question, Matt. So... I try to make it a ritual every day. Every now and then I'll forget. But overall, so from the time I was 13 to the time I was 18, I'd say probably I was probably at home 300 days out of the week, so that, or 300 days out of the year. 
that's five years, about at least a thousand five hundred times. Wow. I would ask myself those two questions. What and then and then just you had to like make decisions. Do I do this? Do I care more about you know getting a job? Do I care more about this person, this girl, whatever? Talk to me about what when you were applying for universities. Uh, I'm, you just did you just throw your your name in the hat? Was that your goal? Was just to I'm at least going to apply to Harvard. I'm at least going to apply to Yale. Absolutely. So one of the things I learned early on is that. Rejection is inevitable, but if you don't even give a chance to try, then you're essentially rejecting yourself, and your chances are zero. So I figured getting into a place like Harvard or Yale, probably about 7%, but given my circumstances, maybe 2 or 1%, yeah. 3 at best. And I figured, but if I don't apply, the chances are zero. But I did the things that I could. So earlier you mentioned that, of course, my mom did what she could with the environment sure. she had. and. There's a bunch of it that was outside of my control. But I later found out when I was at Yale, I researched at a psychology lab. And the psychology, the research we did was about how do people overcome obstacles in their lives, the most dire. So one thing we focused on was the Holocaust. And we figured out we would read memoirs, or I would read memoirs about Holocaust survivors and try to figure out what was it that kept them alive versus everyone else who didn't quite make it. And one of the things we found out is that the people who survived in their memoirs, if you read any of them, Victor Frank's one of my favorites, Man's Search yeah. Meaning, he talks about how everything can be taken away from you except for your power to choose your attitude in any circumstance. And I remember I didn't know exactly how to increase my chances to get into Yale at Harvard, but I knew, as I mentioned earlier, if I didn't aim high, I would aim low, and if I hit it, then I would regret not aiming high and right. missing, but... So when I, since I didn't know what I was doing, I would ask my high school teachers and my counselors. Unfortunately, they didn't exactly know about the college process themselves because my counselors were so busy handling people who were on the fringe of dropping out of high yeah, school. Yeah, not even graduating right. high school, right? Exactly. And my teachers, most of them came from local universities as well. So our faculty didn't have anyone who went to a liberal arts in the Northeast or Stanford, MIT or Yale or Harvard. Most people stayed in state or within the area. So I turned to the internet, which became one of my blessings. So my teachers in high school, they would support me and my counselors supported me. And I turned to the internet. I thought again, what can I do within my power? I figured I'll just search on the internet. Maybe there's something there. Google is very popular. So I remember just Googling how to get, how to increase my odds of getting to Yale and Harvard. And I, during my junior year, so junior year of high school, 11th grade, I found this website called College Confidential. So College Confidential is a forum where high-achieving students and eager parents meet to talk about how they could increase their odds of getting into an Ivy League school or a top school. So these are people who have perfect SAT scores. These yeah. are people who come from, well, more affluent families, or some of them are even junior Olympic athletes, gold medalists, no. like, you name it, they've yeah. done it. And this community is a people of overachievers, and essentially two things can happen when you go into this website. However, one, you become dismayed at how more accomplished everyone else is compared to you that you just shy away and you don't even apply to these schools. Or, in my case, I wanted to learn from these people. I figured they have a better SAT score, they go to schools with more rigorous access curriculums. I wanted to know, how can I imitate that? And so I would read about these people with these gold medals and these perfect scores, and I would message them. So I would email them, 
I would send them a message on the website yeah. and I essentially ask them, for example, I knew that I needed a high SAT score. So the SAT score, the SAT works out of a scale of 2,400. The average is 1,500. You need about a, a 2,200 to get into Yale, Harvard. That's the average. You don't need it, but that's about the average. Yeah, that helps. And my, yeah. That helps. So the national average is 1,500, and my high school was uh, my high school district was about 1,100. So we're scoring 400 below the national average. Oh, yeah. And my score, my score at the time was slightly above the national average, but still nowhere near what I needed to get into a Harvard or a Yale. So I would find these people with these perfect scores, for example, and I would just message them and ask for help. Oh, I would probably send about a hundred. I would send about a hundred of these because I knew that most people would not message me back. Right. But again, it's all about the law of large numbers. If you if you ask enough times, eventually someone will help you out. So eventually, a number of people helped me out, and they would recommend me these SAT prep courses. Yeah. But the problem is that these prep courses cost about three thousand. That's right. Now you need the five. money. Right. Now I need the money, and I don't have the money. So instead, I asked them, could I get a curriculum? Could I just get the syllabus? And when one person sent me a syllabus of one of the top test prep programs in the United States, I literally went through it, and I bought every single book that was mentioned that oh was part heavens. of. Yeah. And so, so books are cheap. Books are, and every book that I couldn't afford that was a little more expensive, so one book was like $500, I would borrow from my library. And when I realized my library didn't have it, Another library, maybe across the state, had it, and I asked if my library could get that for me. And it took two weeks, but they finally pulled it off, and I had it in my hand. Davis, it's and amazing. I, we we only have about a minute left, but I want to know what what would you tell? What would you tell every young kid that might be listening, or a parent that's listening? What would you tell them that is the key? It sounds like you you never stopped. You kept the vision. You did everything you could. You built a network. What else would you tell us as we have to close out? All right, Matt. Well, I guess my advice would be to the same thing that I did found in my research with the Holocaust survivors is that no matter what circumstances you live in, no matter what life deals you, instead of worrying about things that you can't control, think about the things that you can control and work from there and everything else will work out. You can either be a victim of your environment or you can be a co-creator. And if you choose to be a co-creator, the possibilities are endless. I love the and, and And you never gave up. And when you couldn't afford it, you just found another way. Oh, man, Davis. Seriously, proud of you, my friend. And I think just the story itself will change a lot of lives. So congratulations. Keep uh, keep doing what you can to, to keep this message going. Share it with everybody you can. Davis Wynn, congratulations on your graduation coming up from Yale University, man. That's amazing. And uh, so many people are behind you. Folks, powerful, really. Uh, again, another story of somebody that... that just shouldn't be there shouldn't be doing it right didn't have the sat scores nonetheless uh changing his own life his family's life they're going to be so proud good stuff we'll take a break this is the matt townsend show when we come back we'll go visit the guys down in uh, studio b right here on the matt townsend show on byu radio Welcome back, everybody. Step on a crack. Break your mama's back. <laughs> Welcome back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're joined uh, by Spencer Linton, Jerem Jordan. Feliz uh, Cinco de Mayo, hijos míos. <laughs> happy, happy that, Cinco de Mayo to you. Who is, who is playing? Somebody was like playing a little electric flute. 
was, yep. <laughs> if it's if anybody's Jeez. playing a mouth instrument, it's Jerem. Is that it? Yep. He's the king of the mouth instrument. Mm-hmm. Bird calling and hey, making instruments with his mouth. I don't want this. Jerem, what, what you got on your head there, pal? Sombrero, dude. My mom's Mexican. Feliz Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. Do you know what Do you know what we're celebrating with Cinco de Mayo? Yes. The, uh, the yes. The yes. day after May the 4th be with you. <laughs> that, it's actually the, the war I'm where... Assuming, yeah. El it, Tri got their independence. Independencia. No. El Tri? No. <laughs> El Tri! Educate us then! It's... It was the Great War of Puebla when mm-hmm. they beat the French. Okay. Duh. A classic. I, I actually didn't know that till about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> L3, hey, the three colors. Oh, is that, oh, is that what that the is? The three. Yeah. Yes. That's the, their nickname. That's the my, soccer my, team's my, name as well. My son is in Mexico, will be home in less than 50 days. On his two-year LDS mission yes, trip? Yes, and he, his LDS mission trip, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, um, and he has gained apparently 15 pounds. Good nice. for him. Don't nice. you think? Which is is, that, a, is that good or bad for him? I don't know. I mean, it's probably, it's great. He just says you got to love the tortillas. Yes. It's good times. Yeah. I hey. grew up eating a lot of Mexican food. I, I love it. So my, uh, does your mom make My like, mom's Caucasian, real but authentic? she grew up in Mexico. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. So love it. So does she ever like deliver? Does she ever bring stuff by? No, she doesn't live here. Could she fly it in? No. Just checking. <laughs> I'm really hungry right no, but now. It was, no, but you're, oh, you're really hungry? I'm starving. What time do you eat breakfast? Uh, 4.45. So yeah. Go get, go get free then, so lunch. You, so you eat lunch at I eat lunch 10:30? at 8.45. I have my dinner by about 11.45. <laughs> and then you go to bed at 1. <laughs> yeah, I listen, take my nap listen, at 1. there is free food available for you, Matt. Where? Taco Bell. What? They are giving away. Cinco de Mayo. Yes, it's Taco Tuesday yes. at Taco Bell. It's, it's Breakfast Defector Day. Mm. They are giving away bacon. Poorly worded. Uh, whatever. Bacon ba- tacos not cute, for maybe. free until 11 o'clock. Oh, I'm out of here. Okay? okay? Your show's over in 12 minutes, man. you got a full Eat hour to now. get there and get a free bacon taco. I'm out of here. Okay, if you guys will just cover my show, that'd be great. I'm out of here. Hey, uh, <laughs> cover the next hour. See you, that? see you later. Yeah, you guys cover the next hour. But before I go, did you hear about the shirtless man uh, who invented the hammer dunk in Seattle? The shirtless man who yes, invented the this. hammer dunk? <laughs> I saw this. It was the craziest thing. A guy wielding a hammer somehow climbed up onto a basketball hoop, like a neighborhood hoop, and uh, got his foot stuck in the net and was swinging around uh, with a hammer in his hand. For, I saw this. for about 15 minutes, Surrounded just hanging by there. Cops. Yeah. So first they had to get the hammer away from him. <laughs> and um, then they had to get, uh, then he wouldn't let him near him, so he'd, he'd punch. So they tried to get a ladder up there. Then he'd try to kick the ladder away. And then they just they just took him out. <laughs> they took about 20 it. cops. It was fantastic. It, it makes good video. I thought for sure you'd want to show Tax that. Tax dollars at you in use that's right in use put that on your show today anything else going on your show i mean i don't want to produce everything for your show but i'd for sure have that on there so byu had no draft picks this year right right we we talked about this yesterday with you yeah okay and nine undrafted free agents Mm -hmm. well on cue the day after the draft or two days after the draft the sporting news and their nfl draft guru uh released a projection list and it has Bronson Kafusi from BYU yeah. 
going in the first round of the 2016 NFL draft. So we're thinking how who what? and how many Cougars get drafted next year. We'll discuss that. Is he the only one? Interesting. You know, we how th- many guys? We think there are four solid candidates. Which is, you think, more than this year, for sure. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I think that this is the most talented individual group of NFL prospects BYU's had since 2009. This is huge. That's great news for Bronson, too. Yeah. I mean, if it all plays out that way. Yeah. Plus, we'll have uh, the new assistant coach, Quincy Lewis, Mm -hmm. for the basketball team on the show, and the new director of basketball operations, Andrew May, and uh, women's golfer, Leah Garner. She's headed to the NCAA regional soon. You guys. And it's Cinco de Mayo. And it's Cinco de Mayo. And you're gonna are you gonna wear the hair? Which is roughly the translates to the Nino. You're gonna have to wait for the entire hour to see if we bust out. Oh, you've got to the mariachi hat and the sombrero. And I just want to see you guys dance with them on. We already did that in our pre-production meeting. <laughs> Listen to Jeremy. I, I told you. I Yo told soy you. El Nino, a, a trumpeter without a trumpet, he, he which is, is the trumpet for yes. the Nino. <laughs> did you need to be in a mariachi band? With him, he needs to be a one-man mariachi listen, band. I, I asked a couple weeks ago, could we get mariachis in the studio? In, in my family, it's a thing. My sister's wedding, my cousin's wedding, my mom's wedding. My father was a mariachi. No. You're right. We had mariachis at those receptions. It's a, Are it's you a, serious? That's I'm cool. Serious. That's a great tradition. In my family, it's a thing, man. That's a great tradition. Well, that's where you gain the I'm trumpeting not just making skills. This, yeah. I know. Yeah. I mean, I played I trumpet in elementary and middle. Did you? Yeah. Your lips looked uh, strong like that. If I had a nickel, man. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> awkward moment brought to you by the Matt Townsend Show. Well, good job, guys. Have a great show and Thank uh, you. happy Thank you Cinco de Mayo. And maybe I'll grab you a taco. Maybe not. I, w- I would hope that you would do that for me. After well, all that we've been through together. I don't know that you need it. Get green sauce on it. Ooh, I'm starving. I feel like we should quote Three Amigos before we go. So yeah. like the wind, old one. Efe, <laughs> do you even know what a plethora is? <laughs> <laughs> you guys need to, don't, you, don't they, bang, yes. they, they slap their body, right? They slap their shoulders, their hips. Oh, Let's okay. see that. We've digressed. Okay. Anyway, way to, way to ruin my show. Sorry about that. No, whatever. It's just my show. Now you can go. Do a great job on your show. <laughs> okay. Good job, boys. Have a great one. Viva right, Dr. Matt. Woo. <laughs> Viva Trey. Uh, interesting stuff, you guys. They're, um, they always have something going on. It's like, a, it's like a party central. And it's always funny that they know where the deals are, like Taco Bell, Taco Tuesday. We talked about Taco Tuesday. I didn't know that, was, uh, that they were actually handing out free tacos. So, you know, you might want to drive by a Taco Bell. Uh, we got to do our, our other uh, hero story. We, by the way, our, our earlier guest, Davis Wynn, from really from a, a, a political refugee raised in really horrible conditions. I mean, I guess better than his original country to, to, to yell. It's a pretty amazing hero story. Let me give you one more. And uh, to me, he followed basically the exact same principles that Davis followed. And at least he and his mom did. This is a world-renowned artist named Seth uh, Twast. Twast. Uh, he was told, Seth was told that he, um, he had autism and that that would not allow him to be anything but a janitor. But over time, Seth has proved that theory to be incorrect. When he turned 18, his autism, autism level had become so severe that doctors told him that really he'd never be able to do anything but just go be a janitor. Plan on... Just taking your skills, go be a janitor, and that's what you'll do the rest of your life. But Seth, 
with the loving help of a loving mother, uh, Deborah, has defied those odds and found his talent, which has led him to become a world-renowned artist. After Seth's medical evaluation, Deborah decided to help Seth find something that he could do rather than focus on all of the things he couldn't do. By the way, it's the exact same thing Davis Wynn taught us uh, just a few minutes ago. And she enrolled him in a four-day oil painting class in Cleveland, and Seth took to it immediately. He displayed an understanding of art that most people don't have until they have spent years in school. Seth began painting and sharing his talents with others, and he has now be, uh, been putting those uh, his paintings on display for all to view. Seth's story is inspiring for any and all people who have been told that they are limited because of their disabilities. Seth's mother told Montgomery News that you, can, you can't train him, you can't condition him, you can make him feel guilty, but you can't make him do what he can't do. But if you focus on what he can do, he will blow you away. So uh, Seth's mom, Deborah, you are my hero. Seth's my hero. Davis Wynn is my hero. Three perfect examples of people that uh, that took some very simple vision and questions like, uh, what do I want most in my life? And I'm sure Deborah had to ask, what do I want most for my son, knowing full well, too, that she can't change his autism diagnosis, but she doesn't have to just take everything he can't do. She went out and found what he could do. So to me, folks, that's what makes a hero. A hero isn't just somebody that saves somebody's life. It's... The, the heroes of the police department in Seattle that saved the the hammer wielding basketball uh, player, probably strung out on drugs, guy. Um, the reality is, we we all have something to offer, and we can let our conditions tell us what we can do or we can't do, like autism or like being brought to the United States as a teenager, uh, as a refugee. Or you can just sit there and say, I'm not going to be just made up of what's around me. I'm going to become the change. And then we create a vision for what that is, and we work for it every single day. So shout out. Two great lessons by Davis Wynn and, again, by Seth Chwast, uh just teaching us. We don't have to be limited just because we have limitations. That's the show, my friends. Boom. Bada boom, bada bing. We couldn't do it without you. Remember, the goal in our uh, life is to help you create a better life for yourself. We don't want to tell you how you have to live. We just want to give you some tools and a leg up so that you can go out, sort through all the junk, and find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back tomorrow with more ideas, more tools right here on BYU Radio. Also, you can find us on podcast on iTunes or tune in. Take care. We'll talk again tomorrow.